This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberly. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, the episode that has everything to do with people, process, technology, and strategy within digital transformation. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm the CEO of Third Stage Consulting, an independent consulting firm that helps clients throughout the world reach their third stage of digital transformation success. I'm here today with my co-host, Kyler Cheatham. Kyler, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Excited for the conversation today. Absolutely. Appreciate you being here and appreciate everyone listening. Uh, this is episode number 86. So thank you for joining. And we put out new episodes every Wednesday. So uh, check us out on all the audio podcast platforms that you might be listening on if you're not already. And uh, we also stream this podcast to YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. So be sure to check us out there as well. I've got a great show for you today here on episode 86. Uh, we're going to cover some hot topics to start the show. We're going to talk about the digital transformation of pizza and provide a, a case study of digital transformation within a very narrow niche of the uh, food and beverage industry. We'll talk about digital transformation in emerging markets. We'll talk about automated systems versus, or I'm sorry, automated systems versus automation. Is that correct? The uh, automation autonomous is the, system. So autonomous. automation versus autonomous systems. Yeah. We're 60 seconds in and I'm already confused. So thanks for, for bearing with me so far. So we'll talk about automation versus autonomous systems, um, which shouldn't have been as nearly as complicated as I just made that. And we'll also talk about digital transformation of AC as well. And then later in the show, we have a, a couple guests we're going to have on. Uh, First, our first guest after the hot topics is going to be Wendy Kloon, who's a consultant and author of a book called Strategy to Reality. And she's going to be on the show talking about business architecture. We're going to talk about what business architecture is, why it's so important to transformation, how you can deploy it throughout your organization, and how you can really use this as a way to provide a sort of blueprint for any sort of transformation you might be going through. So stay tuned for that. We'll have Wendy on the show later here today. And then last but not least, we're going to have Jed Hafer on the show, uh, who's been on the show in the past, and he's going to be talking about emotional intelligence, which is his uh, his forte and his specialty. But before we get to uh, our guest, um, what are some of these hot topics you have in store for us, Kyler? Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's start with the most interesting one, which is, of course, pizza. Um, as a pizza lover myself, I was very excited to share this case study that is very relevant. Um, so I hope you're not too hungry in listening to this. But basically what this does is this covers um, some research into Domino's and their specific digital transformation, which is a, a global pizza chain um, as well that specializes in fast and delivery pizza. So basically uh, the hard, Harvard Business Review um, surveyed uh, 2,500 major companies before kind of digging into one. And basically what they were looking for is how to 
uh, understand how emerging technologies are influencing business strategies. So of these major companies that they surveyed, they found that um, most promised benefits of AI failed to deliver. So we've talked about, about that a lot is making sure your business is ready for things like artificial intelligence. So we kind of backed that up and really did more of a granular deep dive into a specific company that went through a significant digital transformation, which is Domino's. So basically what they found there is reorganizing the ordering experience caused a lot of customer anxiety. Uh, so they pivoted on what they were asking questions of their customers to reduce that stress around dinner. And this very interesting survey that they used using AI to find what their customers were actually looking for or the why behind what their product solved. So they found at about 4.30 p.m., almost three-fourths of households didn't know what they were having for dinner. So they launched an online ordering um, and released a, a series of kind of in incremental strategies around targeting that 4 to 4.30 tier of their messaging or marketing or just their overall optimizations of online ordering. Um, and actually what they found is once they launched that online ordering and those offers through that tier, customers said that pizza tasted better if they ordered um, it online versus order over the phone. <laughs> Which I think is is really funny. Um, so basically, this led to the emergence of their they call it their anywhere strategy that created brand experiences and boosted ROI for investors that exceeded big industry tech titans like Facebook, Amazon, and Google over a ten year period because they addressed a specific customer challenge and leveraged the technology to identify that sweet spot. So very interesting case study when it comes to Domino's and wanted to get your feedback on how do you ask the right questions in your digital transformation and ensure that you're really addressing your competitive advantage or value sweet spot for your customers? Well, I think they, the way Domino's did it uh, was smart because they started with the customer in mind and, and really looked at that customer experience and how, how they could optimize the customer experience with their digital transformation. So I think that's probably the biggest lesson or takeaway I would have from that. It's sort of a secondary, but still important takeaway would be that I would suspect my, my hypothesis would be part of the reason why people thought it tasted better when they ordered it via the app versus the phone would be that they were probably more likely to get it right. They being Domino's were probably more likely to get the order right if it was ordered electronically uh, and you sort of mitigate the middleman or, or uh, get rid of the middleman and don't have um, the human error that goes along with that. So I'd suspect that could be a, a big part of it. Um, but I think that, you know, first and foremost, focusing on the end in mind and what it is you're trying to accomplish and, and really rethinking or thinking outside the box with digital transformation is really important rather than just taking technology at face value and assuming that that's somehow going to transform your business. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely a, a very interesting um ability to really identify exactly what they were looking for as far as even a time window um, to look at when they should target their audience. So even pizza folks can go through a digital transformation. It's nobody's nobody's um, adverse to a digital transformation, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Now I'm really hungry after. Yeah, uh, hearing this, I actually am too. 
It's like going to the grocery store hungry. It's a terrible mistake. You should never do that. But um, right. maybe we'll get some some pizza in the office after this to celebrate the success of Domino's digital transformation. But right. um, absolutely. Uh, so kind of building on that, I wanted to talk about the difference between automated systems and autonomous ones because it's a hot trend in the marketplace right now. As we look into the evolution of Industry 4.0 and what that looks like when we take automations really to the next level. So let's talk about the differences between that. Um, so today's usually automated systems, they use routine or repetitive processes and make it easier through minimal human interaction, right? So that's something like robotic process automation, um, which may count how many widgets move across the production line um, and determine any opportunities to optimize or if there's any defects or issues within that production line specifically. Uh, decisions, though, are made through the automation and are, are predefined by the actual human aspect. So those automations might not always make the decisions themselves. They need some sort of human intervention unless they're programmed to do so, right? Autonomous systems, however, feature more of the machine learning aspect of it on the other they're trained and can adapt to those environments and learn how to make those decisions themselves based on data integrations and enterprise wide strategies that they've been built upon uh, so back to kind of our our widget conversation on that production line that system would actually only count, not only count the widgets, right? I analyze them, but also determine the source of the problem and fix the problem through a prescripted action. So we've seen those kind of leverage into the next marketplace, but right now we still see a lot of our client community uh, kind of struggle with the human aspect of automation. So moving to autonomous systems can really present an additional level of resistance and the need for um, organizational change management. So wanted to get your feedback on what you might see in the marketplace, if that's actually a, a tangible evolution that businesses can expect to go through uh, in the next level of automation. Yeah, it is. But I, I think the caveat to that opportunity and the potential business value there is what you're alluding to, which is the human resistance or the potential human resistance to the change and to the improvements that the technology can enable. Uh, one of the tricky things we see with some of these really different technologies like machine learning or AI or you know other sorts of technologies that are really um, sort of quantum leaps, I guess you'd say, as far as big jumps in terms of just totally changing the way people do their jobs and the way organizations work. One of the downside risks that undermine the potential business value is that people resist it, not because they don't think it's a good idea or because the technology isn't sound, but because they don't know what that means for their job. So if you're going to automate a large part of what I used to do or what I'm doing right now, and I've been doing that same job for 20 years, you can see why I might get a little nervous and a little skeptical of a technology coming in to do what I take a lot of pride in doing. And now you're telling me you're just going to, you're going to automate that, or you're going to have a computer learn what I do and, and make decisions and that sort of thing. So I think the key there though, is to replace that fear with the opportunity of what that means for the person's job going forward. And a lot of times, you know, we hear a lot of with our clients, we hear a lot of refrain or, or we hear this a lot with uh, like change management type consultants too, where a lot of consultants and organizations just say, well, but now you can do more strategic stuff. You don't have to worry about all that manual stuff you were doing before. Well, okay, that sounds good in theory, but what is that strategic stuff? Like, what exactly am I going to do? 
and what does that look like? How does that make my job more fun? That sort of thing. Um, but I think a lot of people try to gloss over that and just say, well, don't worry about it. You know, we're taking away all the work you don't like doing, which might be based on a faulty assumption that I don't like doing my work, by the way. Maybe mm -hmm. I like doing some of that manual right. stuff. Exactly. And now you're going to take it away. So you've got to sort of work through all that in a meaningful detail. And a lot of organizations don't know. They just want to put the technology in place and then figure out what to do with that person's job after they automate it um, or, you know, part of their job. So I think that's the key is really have a clear vision of what the organization is going to look like, not just from a process and technology perspective, but perhaps more importantly, from a, from a people perspective. Yeah. And I, I think there's something to be said about the unique person and identifying that. Um, I, I remember when I, earlier in my career, I managed a, a younger employee that did all of these manual processes and we integrated new technology so that he wouldn't have to engage in that hard spreadsheet work, not realizing that he actually really liked that hard spreadsheet work. So yeah. we were creating a lot of additional anxiety around his job because we didn't understand his why, you know, what is his purpose, what kind of lights him up, right, if you will. And um, so I, I think that piece of, of really understanding your overall subculture as a middle manager is important to identify how to bring on these new technologies that will create efficiencies and, and really bring the business to the next level. But you can't do that without including the people within that change. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think we as consultants and leaders oftentimes assume, wrongfully assume that people don't like their manual jobs or they don't like their broken processes or the broken systems. It, you know, they may recognize there's warts on it, on the process or the systems, but it doesn't mean that people are necessarily ready or comfortable with you ripping that process away from them and replacing the technology. That may be the right answer from a business perspective. Don't get me wrong, mm -hmm. but yeah. from a individual people perspective, that's not, I think that's a really faulty and dangerous assumption to make, which a lot it's, it, I'm always surprised at how many leaders, executives and even consultants assume that, well, obviously this technology is going to be way better and make your job so much better. I don't agree with, I don't agree that most people see it that way, at least in the early parts of the journey, unless you've done some of the legwork you have to do to help them get there and, and understand the why and what it's going to look like going forward. Yeah. And, and we, you know, countless times when we do things like organizational readiness assessment, we uncover data around perceptions within the organization that leaders are shocked by, that they had no idea existed. So that's the importance of understanding what is your organization's perspective and appetite around this change. So, but I, I won't get too bogged down in organizational change management because, you know, we could talk about that all day long. We can and we have before, so yeah. we'll, we'll do it again if we need to. <laughs> Multiple hours, right. Um, kind of going to a, a global view, uh, last week we hosted our um, digital stratosphere in our EMEA region and talked about some emerging technologies and strategies. Uh, if you're interested in hearing that, you can always go to our website and um, get it on demand. You can see our, our full keynotes. But kind of a, a spin off of that, we wanted to talk about the transformation in specifically Turkey that's become an emerging market in specifically 2020 within its entrepreneurial ecosystem, specifically around technology. So global ventures, just from a data perspective, uh, totaled over $650 billion compared to the $335 billion in 2020. 
So making that a huge jump between 2021 and 2020 specifically for technology, which a lot was, you know, made from the COVID-19 pandemic and changing of business models. Specifically in Turkey, it marked uh, 92% year-over-year growth for funding in technology, specific startups. It became the 10th country to attract the most investment among European countries in two years. And it hosts six unicorns when it had zero before. And a unicorn, if if you are thinking sparkly um, horse like um, a toddler parent would, like myself, those are actually um, startups that focus on um, high capital funding. Mm. So they also uh, host the world's biggest um, aviation and space technology festival. I don't know if you know this, Eric, but it's called TechnoFest, which I'm like, that's a great name. It <laughs> is. <laughs> So um, basically, the 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 government and the people of Turkey have really embraced the aspect of digital transformation and the government's um, support through ecosystem and nurturing those specific small to medium sized businesses through policies that really lean out regulation or favoring to traditional offline enterprises or you could say offline or you know outsourced enterprises so really working to build up those competencies within the country uh, so I wanted to share some of those um, that we've seen in emerging markets through those areas and just get your feedback on kind of that growth Eric yeah I think it's a, an interesting um, interesting case study I didn't know those data points you shared but I think it's interesting to see all these emerging markets, including Turkey and other parts of the world that we work in, you know, is how how they're evolving and how uh, the government's investing in sort of that infrastructure for entrepreneurship and high growth businesses. And certainly along with that comes the need for technology and, and the opportunity for technology to further scale those organizations. So um, super interesting stuff for sure. And I think it's a good reminder that um, oftentimes outside of our own home country, wherever that might be, there's a lot of opportunity out there that we should be aware of as well. Yeah, and a lot of learnings that you can still scale, even if you are a big organization that, you know, can go back to basics from those more emerging markets on a global lens. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, lastly, um, I, I have to admit to our audience, I went down a bit of a rabbit hole from my consultant brain because we've been having challenges here in the U.S. as uh, globally with uh, just the overall climate. Uh, it's been very hot. So many of our global po power grids and local power grids here, we, they actually ask users to stop consuming power. So my consultant brain was like, well, what is the why behind that and how do we fix it? So I had to spend, you know, a couple hours looking into this and I thought I'd bring my research into ground control. So Basically, what it looks like is we see a, a digital transformation around the use of energy, around the use of power in order to cool down, specifically with this example, uh, customers or consumers' homes when it, they're extremely hot. And I didn't, I actually learned from our European team that only 1% of European households actually have air conditioning, which for me, that, you know, that's very cruel and unusual. Um, and could, I could never survive like that, but, um, but we, we Neither kind of, I. I know, right. <laughs> 
So I wanted to share a specific case study about how different emerging technologies are solving this problem. So a group of researchers at Harvard University uh, have a new air conditioning prototype, and they're not the only one. They actually call it cold snap. So basically, this prototype doesn't use a normal refrigerant, but a special coating on a ceramic frame to evaporate water to cool an indoor space without adding moisture to the air. Uh, So very interesting. And I'm going to actually read you a quote from the lead researcher so you can get an idea of what this looks like. And he says, because we don't have vapor compression systems and the energy of trying to release and compress refrigerants, the energy consumption of the system is far, far lower. So combating that issue of the the power grid overload and support. So it seems like this is a, a main trend going into the overall digital transformation of energy and how we consume um, traditional power. And just wanted to get your feedback on that, Eric, if that's a trend that we'll continue to see, or if you've been seeing that in the marketplace with your client work as well. Yeah, I think it is a, a trend that'll continue. And I think it's just an opportunity to use technology to help make the consumption of electricity more efficient, you know, short of having to ask people to stop cooling off their homes or stop, you know, charging their devices or whatever, you know, that that's sort of a last resort that's unfortunate that you see in, in some parts of the world. Um, but I think the other part of it too, that, that it kind of brings up or the other question it brings up is with our, with our moves toward um, digitization in general, which is, you know, more technology consuming more energy, as well as moving to electric cars and vehicles versus uh, fossil fuel. Um, I think, you know, I, I have to wonder what that means for an aging electric infrastructure, which I, you know, I spent, it's been about 20 years now or 15 years now. I spent a few years in the energy and utilities industry where that's all I did for about 40 years was consult on systems and ERP and digital transformation in energy and utilities. And I remember even then they were struggling with this whole concept of, you know, an aging infrastructure that was built decades ago, and it's really hard to uh, maintain, but it's even harder to to upgrade. So I, I'm curious to see sort of how this plays out worldwide, because I think a lot of countries struggle with that same dynamic of having a, a pretty old infrastructure that they haven't yet gotten ready for the need for more consumption potentially. Um, but to your point, your real point here, which is that you know, there are ways that we can use technology to man to better manage consumption and be more efficient with what we're using from the power grid. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely a very interesting case study. I think um, following energy digital transformation is one of my favorite things to do because it's so full of innovation and opportunity um, right now. So we'll continue to to follow that. But I think it's a, a great segue into um, your conversations as well about where strategy actually meets execution and becomes reality. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm excited for our next guest, uh, Wendy Kloon, who is a consultant and author of a book called Strategy to Reality. And the reason I'm excited to have Wendy on the show is because she's going to talk about this whole concept of business architecture. And more than business architecture, it's, it's also talking about, as the name of her book suggests, it's talking about how to translate an organization's strategy into specific capabilities and initiatives and work streams within your organization and how to use that as a way to have a clear blueprint for moving forward with your transformation as well as how to keep alignment. So I think this concept of business architecture is one that's 
overlooked and one that organizations don't think enough about. So I'm excited to have her on the show. So we'll take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll have Wendy Clune on the show to talk about business architecture, what it is, why it's important, how it can enable a better digital transformation, all that good stuff. But first, we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 86. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Teetham. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, as well as Spotify, Amazon, Google, etc., Apple, all the all the podcast platforms that you might be listening to podcasts on. You can find Transformation Ground Control there as well. So be sure to check us out, new episodes every Wednesday. So I'm excited for our next guest, uh, Wendy Clune, who is a first-time guest on this show. And I actually came across Wendy when looking for, um, I forgot what I was looking for, but I was doing some sort of research and came across her book and her profile that um, she just released a book uh, this week, actually, um, on September 20th. And the book is called Strategy to Reality. And the reason I was excited and intrigued by having Wendy on the show is that she talks about a lot of the stuff we talk about on this show and that we do day to day as consultants here at Third Stage Consulting. But she does it in a way uh, more from a business-centric perspective, I'd say, and more from a strategy perspective. But it's a really nice way to tie together strategy with transformation, whether it's a digital transformation or any sort of business or other change initiative. Um, but it, I thought it'd be a great topic to unpack here with her, this whole concept of business architecture, what it is, how it works, how it enables better uh, digital transformations, all that good stuff. So with that being said, Wendy, thanks for being on the show today. It is a pleasure and honor. Really looking forward to it, Eric. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on. And, and the reason this all started, the reason you and I first connected and, and the reason I wanted to have you on the show here today is because you are releasing a book that comes out uh, very soon on September 20th. And that that's really what piqued my interest in maybe having a conversation with you. But before we get into your book, I do want to talk about your book and what it's about. Maybe start with who you are and a little bit about your background, if you don't mind. Absolutely. Well, again, great to be here. I am a longtime business architecture practitioner, thought leader, educator. I have practiced the discipline from about every angle you can imagine, particularly in a transformational context. So leveraging business architecture, um, for example, I've been the enterprise-wide business architect of top-to-bottom enterprise transformation. I've helped organizations to create effective end-to-end -end strategy execution, and I've used it for things like 
cross-sector initiatives to help a nation with education. So really a, a broad range of scenarios. My, my passion and joy is, is helping organizations and people on their business architecture journey. So that's, that's really my favorite. And um, maybe one last thing I'll mention is I am also a co-founder of the Business Architecture Guild, which is the not-for-profit association around business architecture, uh, a fellow with the Institute for Digital Transformation, and as you mentioned, author of the new book, Strategy to Reality. Great. So it sounds like you're really into business architecture. Is that fair to say? That is fair to say. Living and breathing is fair to say. Started a nonprofit. <laughs> you, you focused on it your entire career. It sounds like it's a, a, a passion of yours for sure. Oh, um, I'm all in. Yeah. So speaking of business architecture, you wrote a book about it called Strategy to Reality. Maybe tell us a little bit about this book. Why? What is it? Why did you write it? What's it about? All that good stuff. You bet. So the book, just in a nutshell, casts a new vision for strategy execution from end to end and how teams can work together can do, to do that and how business architecture can be the scaffolding to underpin that and inform and translate strategy in new ways. And then with that as context, it breaks down the what the why and the how to create a strategic business architecture practice within an organization in a, a very practical, proven way. Um, and, and the reason why I wrote the book, I mean, the actual history is I had written a blog called Straight Talk. It was more than a blog, but I had these twice monthly, very robust articles where I broke down business architecture piece by piece for four years, a hundred issues. And I decided that I was going to end it with a book to basically culminate, celebrate, because, you know, there's nothing like actually having that knowledge in, in your hand, right, in, a, in a, a form that you can just hold and, and consume like that. So that was that was a big part of it. But I also wanted to make sure that we could get these ideas to a broader audience as well. So that was a big driver, too. Very cool. How, how long did it take you to write it? Just out of curiosity, how long have you been working on this book? This is a good question. I have three answers. Well, 19 years, which is how long I've been working, you know, on business architecture. Four years, if you think about the Straight Talk blog. But actually, I wrote this book in, in two months. I know that sounds crazy, but I started on, um, you know, July 2nd, finished on August 29th. I was very focused. And I, I think that was possible because um, I attribute it to two things. One, I had worked through these ideas in my mind that they could come back to me in a very coherent way and flow out. But second, I'm also an ultra marathoner. So I have this mindset where I can just, you know, sort of keep pushing through because I knew, Eric, that the longer I took to write it, the longer it was going to be, you know, waiting to be in people's hands. So it actually took me two months <laughs> to write it. That's, yeah. that's impressive. And then it, it's released uh, September 20th, right? Is that the, the official 20th? release date? That's Great. right. Yeah. Well, around congratulations. The that's no, that's no small feat. So congratulations on the book. That's awesome. So maybe, so help us understand then for those of us listening that maybe haven't heard the term business architecture. I think a lot of us, or at least I'll speak for myself, I think when I think architecture, I think system architecture, solution architecture, it's more of a technical integration and overall architecture. But this is something different, right? The, the whole business architecture concept, maybe just at a sort of 20,000 foot view, what is business architecture and why is it so important to any sort of transformation? You bet. Well, um, just simply said, 
I like to think about it. Many people like to think about it as a blueprint of the business, because then we kind of have this analogy in our mind of blueprints of buildings or other things, you know, that we're, we're used to, to having structural blueprints for. So for, you're right. Business architecture is different than a systems architecture. It has uh, 10 specifically different views. So at the heart of a business architecture are the information concepts like Sounds obvious, but what's a customer? What's a product? What's a payment? What's an asset? So information concepts, capabilities, these reusable abilities that an organization has and value streams to deliver value to you know, an internal or external stakeholder. Beyond that, there are other focal points. Like I said, there are 10 different views, things like products, strategies, initiatives, policies, all the aspects of the business, right? So when we think about business architecture, though, there's there's a very important point here. It is a macro level view of an entire organization. So it's a shared view. It's a shared language. It's a shared mental model at a very high level elevation. And just like any blueprint, uh, business architecture helps organizations to create common understanding and activate change. And because of the change, digital transformation, all the disruption that organizations are dealing with, this is why business architecture has gained more traction, right? Because it's a blueprint to help us through change. So generally speaking, the why of business architecture, and especially for a transformational context, is to help organizations inform and translate strategy and align it from end to end and keep it aligned. Secondly, to help design or redesign an organization. So think about, again, capabilities as reusable building blocks. And thirdly, to help inform decisions with a more holistic view uh, of the enterprise. Yeah, that's great. You know, as you were, as you were chatting just there and giving that description, which is an awesome kind of overview of what business architecture is, I was thinking about how in transformations, so many times, one of the root causes of failure and in, in some of the challenges organizations face is that lack of alignment. And it seems like this concept is a way to really make sure that your people are aligned, that your processes are aligned with your technology, that your strategy is aligned with your transformation and all those different pieces that oftentimes get misaligned. So it, it, in addition to being a blueprint and giving some clarity, it also seems like it'd be a great way to get that level of alignment that organizations often lack. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think alignment is really one of the best words you could have picked, right? Alignment and connecting. And, and you know, it just at the very basic level too helps us understand where are we, where are we going and what does that look like? And what does that look like to me as an employer, you know, a leader? What does it look like in my area? Otherwise, you have these sort of big nebulous ideas. And then how are we going to get there collectively together, right? Because digital transformations can be can be massive change across business units and, and products and, and regions. So it does indeed help to align. Um, and, you know, there's there's so many different ways it does that. One is from strategy to initiatives. Right. Another way is from, you know, business to IT and sort of driving the IT environment and needs and investments with the business priority and context. And another example is, is just even thinking about delivering customer or partner or employee experiences and, you know, making sure that we can deliver capabilities in a way that is, um, you know, uh, um, consistent and integrated and bringing together the people, process and technology to be able to do so and actually orchestrate those types of experiences. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah, that's well, well put. I mean, it's a great way to sort of tie together all those pieces. And you use the word a couple times now, end to end. It seems like that's a key part of it, too, is looking at the entire organization, whether it be end to end processes and technologies and people and organizational structures and all that good stuff. Yeah. And, and you couldn't be more right. And, you know, again, the, the concept seems kind of obvious if you think about, well, we have blueprints for buildings. Why wouldn't you have a blueprint for an organization? We don't always think that way. So yeah. end to end is actually a very fresh view. And it's so critical to things like customer experience, because, you know, if things aren't working well inside out, it's going to show outside into them. So very well said. Very well yeah. Said. I, I love the analogy of, of the buildings because I always, you know, one, one analogy I've picked up on lately just in the last few months is, is trying to tie transformation and business in general back to something physical like like buildings. And it's similar to saying, looking at a situation where you want a building with running water, you wouldn't reach out directly to the plumber to start the process. But that's what a lot of organizations do. They reach out to the plumbers right away, which would be the software vendors or the system integrators to try and get running water, but you don't have the foundation. First of all, you don't even have the vision for what you want the overall thing to be. You don't have the foundation, you don't have the framing, you don't know where the plumbing should go, but you're calling the plumber. So it's a, if, if you think of it in that context, I think it makes a lot of sense, this whole concept of architecture and business architecture. Exactly right, exactly right. So I wanna, I wanna dive into this a little bit more. While the audience is thinking of some great insightful questions for you, Wendy, I have another one for you that I'll start with. I'm not saying it's great or insightful, but I'll, I'll give you a question. <laughs> Um, but what's, what, how does, how does the organization, how does this, um, maybe just dive in a little bit more into how this concept of business architecture helps align an organization. When you look at operating model, I know that you talk a lot about operating model in the book. You talk about sort of that organizational design piece, um, technology, of course, is a big component. How does it, how does business architecture maybe go a little bit further into that? I know you've, you sort of touched on this already, but maybe help us understand how business architecture provides that alignment across all these Absolutely. Yep. And, and, you know, if you think about business architecture, it's, it's kind of like this multi-dimensional cube we can kind of spin around. And what it really is, is it's, this is why I love your question, Eric, right? It's, it's connections. So let me actually get specific on, on, on maybe a couple scenarios, right? So one would be, um, what does it really mean to align strategy and execution? Like unpacking that, there is a very important, I like to call it a golden thread from strategy pieces. So however your organization breaks it down, but one example might be strategy to goal, to objective, to course of action. And then what organizations typically do is they kind of jump to the initiatives or the projects, or there could be agile work, right? But there's, there's this big gap here. And the key thing that business architecture adds in there for the alignment is, well, what is that, what, what does that strategy mean to the value streams and the capabilities? In other words, what changes need to happen? The value stream and the capability essentially help, they're like these Rosetta stones that help to pull up change to a macro level. So we can shift from not delivering initiatives, oftentimes in silos, to building capabilities that can be owned and delivered and reused and put together in different ways for innovation and enabled more effectively through, through technology and, and people and process for that matter. So that's one example of alignment. And so if you think about having that golden thread, you can ask questions like, does the investment portfolio or do the initiatives actually tie back to our strategies? Do we have any gaps? Do we have any misalignment? 
or in our very fluid world and look at all of our, you know, whether it's digital disruption or just some of the global shockwaves that we've had, right? With, you know, and you can also do a, a dynamic replanning. So if all of a sudden a strategy or goal or objective is no longer a priority, you can kind of replan that and quickly decide what to stop doing and pivot and maybe even use your capabilities in a different way. So that's, that's an example. Um, at the very highest level, you know, people are usually pretty familiar with business models and operating models, but the business architecture is right in the middle there. And it came on the scene a little bit later, right? So we've been formalizing the discipline through the guild since 2010. So, but it's really, again, in the middle there as a translator. So whether it's digital or, or another reason that you're going to be, you know, reshaping, reimagining your business model, you're still going to go through that same translation of what does it mean to value streams and capabilities. And then that will influence the changes to the operating model, the people, the process, the technology. Um, and, and maybe I'll give one more example of alignment, if I could, from the IT perspective. So there's not just, um, you know, business strategy helping to inform the IT strategy, but even as we think about maybe something like application portfolio management, we could use, we could overlay the business capabilities to understand where do we have redundancy in systems and, or, 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 or overlay where do we have tech debt and based on the business priorities of those capabilities, where should we really do our, our investment or, or what does that roadmap need to look like over time? So just a couple of right. examples. Those great examples. We're here with Wendy Kloon talking about business architecture and how it can enable better digital transformations. We're going to continue the conversation when we come back from a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 86. We're here in the midst of a conversation with Wendy talking about business architecture and how it can enable a better digital transformation and better outcomes. And build use the word a couple times here. You've, you've talked about capabilities and building internal capabilities. So I wanted to show this question from, um, I'm sorry, it was actually from Sam Graham. Sorry about that. Let me show the right question here. Um, this is from Sam. He says, is business architecture more concerned with effectiveness than efficiency? And, I, and he was sort of starting to, uh, as he was asking the question, that you were sort of starting to um, touch on that. But what, what are your thoughts? Because a lot of us, when we think about process improvement or realigning business processes, a lot of times we focus on the efficiency piece of it. But I've heard you use a couple times now capabilities, and that's something different than efficiency. They, not that it's mutually exclusive, but it's, it's just a different angle. So what, what's your take on that? Oh, absolutely. And Sam, an incredible question here. So I would say, I'm going to say it this way, business architecture is leveraged 
in a more strategic context as this translator, like we've been talking about. So is it more concerned with effectiveness over efficiency? I would generally say yes, but, and here's the key, business architecture is also a little bit of a Swiss army knife. So that means you can use this set of information in this knowledge base, right? This blueprint in different ways. So an organization could, and organizations do use it for efficiency, but at a very macro level, right? So it's not going to replace, for example, process improvement, but what business architecture can bring to the table is a high level value stream that helps us to like sort of streamline and optimize the processes that are, you know, ultimately enabling it. So the, the quick answer is, you know, it's, 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 met, it's more strategic leaning. Yes, it's more focused on effectiveness, um, but you can use it for other things. Just know it's, uh, where its power lies and where its limitations lie, right? Because it's not, like I said, it's 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 not meant to be a detailed improvement discipline. Right, right. Yeah. Great point. And then Kyler uh, on LinkedIn asked the question, uh, love the golden thread concept. How do you create awareness around that gap between strategy and execution? Boy, is this the question. Um, this is the question. So... I say there's a secret of business architecture and the secret is it's not about the business architecture as much as that sounds silly and sounds silly coming from me. Um, what I mean is business architecture is, is one way that we can help to address the bigger problem of strategy execution. And by the way, we work hand in hand with a whole bunch of other teams to do that. It's not the silver bullet. It's not the only answer it plays a very important role, but it's not the entire answer. So what I find to Kyler's great question is organizations have become so um, immune to the strategy to execution gap. It's sort of like walking with this rock in your shoe. You don't even realize it's there. It, yeah. The statistics that have been given to us from frankly decades ago instill abound. Things like the, the, the large percentage of people in organizations who don't understand the organization's strategy, like there's a, a stat for like 95% of employees don't understand the strategy, or 67% of HR and IT you know, departments develop strategies that aren't tied to corporate strategies. So we have these 70% these of change initiatives fail. I mean, whatever stat you pick it, they, they're there. And so... Um, Kyler, you really went to like the heart of this because what we need to do is create executive awareness around the, 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 the possibility of creating cohesive end-to-end -end strategy execution and the challenge of if we don't do that. And ultimately, our organizations are focused a lot on delivery agility, right? There's a lot of movement there, but we need to create end-to-end -end organizational agility, which is the ability to get idea from strategy formulated into action quickly and well. And if we can't do that, that is, um, that's a detriment to competitive advantage, arguably survival or an organization or government's ability to deliver on the mission. So I spend a lot of my days working with executives and trying to uh, bring awareness to this so it's honestly, it's creating awareness. It's, it's just putting it out in the spotlight, helping them to see the potential, helping them to see the, the possible downfalls of not creating good strategy execution and bridging this gap, and then taking step-by-step, 
step-by-step, um, you know, improvements towards it. But it, it, it does really start with the executive suite. That's the, that's the best way. Yeah. So it, everything you're saying makes total sense. And, and as you're describing this all, it, it sounds like common sense, almost like a no-brainer that you would do these things. Why, why do organizations not think this way? I, I don't know if you agree with this, but my, my observation is most organizations don't think inherently or, or naturally think the way you're describing business architecture. Why, why is that and how do you overcome that? I if couldn't agree with you more. Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree with you more. I think part of it starts in the way we're educated. So even in business school, and we, we have, in fact, with the MBA roundtable, done some research in 2021 that looked at graduate business education curriculums. And it did reveal that strategy execution was not taught completely enough. Um, and it, um, it also doesn't you know, have really a mention of business architecture except for some very select programs. So I think part of it starts in education. I think the other part is actually sort of deeply rooted in either the way we naturally think or how we've grown up, right? Our, our worlds are very siloed, you know, just look at going to school when you're young. I have math over here, science over there, reading over there, or even in university, right? Subjects are separate. Then you look at our, how our, the, the structures of our, our corporations and organizations have evolved, very functional, very siloed. Now there's lots of factors in play that's shifting that and being more self-organized and agile. But I think part of it is just how we're structured to do work that really creates these very strong silos, along with not being encouraged to think systemically in big picture. And that kind of brings us to why we have this challenge today. People aren't back to our blueprint example and what you were saying about the plumber. We would never build the house of our dreams without a blueprint, but we do it in business because we're just not used to thinking in a structured macro level way. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. I, one, of the, one of my favorite parts of business school I remember, and I, the reason I'm thinking about this is because I was recently interviewed for a, a, an electronic textbook that's getting published next year. And so they interviewed me about this exact topic, but the, the topic is, or the model is that the McKinsey 7S model yep. um, that, that has, I don't remember what all seven are. It's like strategy, system, structure, but there's shared values, a bunch of others, but it's basically seven things you want to make sure are aligned in strategy execution. But I remember when I learned that, I felt like that was one of the few frameworks in business school that I learned that teaches you how to take this really high level ivory tower strategy type stuff, you know, the MBA McKinsey ish type stuff and translates it down to like how you actually execute and run the organization. And so to your point, I, I can't name another model or another concept I learned in business school that does everything you're, you're describing here. Right. Right. Yeah. So, so um, here's a question from, um, Jeanette on LinkedIn, she says, so what's getting in the way of closing that gap between, um, you know, that, the, the strategy and execution? do you believe all executives have aligned goals? What are the shared metrics then to create alignment? Great question. So, so there is a big mindset in the way of closing the gap and there's also organizational inertia. You know, people have never been busier than they are today. Right. And, um, and then you look at maybe what I'm compensated for and what my area of responsibilities are, right? So the organizational setup 
doesn't allow for us to collaborate and you know make decisions together or you know fund things that might build that foundation versus what the problem is I'm solving right here right now for my area that I have control over. So um, I do think you know there's there's some very structural things to fix and there's some very mindset things to fix. Um, Erica, if you could possibly put the question up again, I think there was a, a question about aligning uh, goals. Do you believe that all executives have aligned goals and what are the shared metrics then to create the alignment? Um, I, this, this, this gets to be really tricky business having done sort of alignment and, and, you know, decomposition from corporate down to business unit strategies and trying to hook the strategies together. I think there's a lot of spiritual alignment. Um, in a lot of like, this is my stuff, don't touch it, it's close enough. Um, so no, at the end of the day, I don't believe that we're as aligned as we could be on goals. Um, and in terms of shared metrics to create that alignment, I think it's all coming back to how do you think about investing in capabilities? How do you think about taking back to the golden thread, take the goals, the objectives, and then don't break it out to the executives yet. Don't break it out to the departments. First say, from the organization's perspective, which values, dreams, and capabilities need to be invested in, regardless of org structure, then let's get the right people to the table uh, to be able to act on them. So the golden thread is actually a really key part of, of aligning people. <clears throat> I will even give an example of a wonderful leading organization that, um, again, to this, this great question by Jeanette, um, it was the board that said, um, they actually said, we're doing really well, but we don't know why. And so if we start to not do well, we don't know what levers to pull. We don't know what to do. We don't know what the metrics are. So um, that was a great example of from the board kind of using that, you know, this, this traceability. They said, what are the, the corporate goals, objectives, metrics? What are they at the business units? And they took it all the way down actually to the individuals. So that's a, a pretty, pretty, pretty cool example of, of some leadership there. That is cool. And it's, it's interesting you say that because usually you think of needing to get alignment in the context of we're struggling as an organization. So how do we get back on track? But it's interesting to hear a case study of a company that says we're doing well, but we don't know why. And we want to make sure we keep doing whatever we're doing. We want to do more of it and, you know, not get, get off track or misaligned. It's a great point. So uh, just a couple of comments I'll, I'll share with you here. Um, so from Kyler, she says, Wendy, great answer. Organizational agility is so critical, yet so difficult to secure within some, some organizations. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, a bunch of emojis from Ahmed on, on YouTube, right. a bunch of uh, flexes and thumbs up. So I, I think that's a positive thing. Um, and uh, so, so here's, a, here's a question sort of building on this concept of the, the, the siloed learning you just talked about a minute ago. You know, we, organizations are built to some degree, especially as they get bigger, they're built to specialize in certain things mm -hmm. in, in certain areas. And so you build the departments, a functional area or a functional competency that focuses on marketing or sales or whatever it is, finance. And to your point, you don't have that kind of that end to end view that you've been talking about. So Kyler says that this makes so much sense, cyber learning, how do we create change? And maybe just adding on that a little bit, how can organizations just change the mindset, you know, like just make people more aware and create that cross-functional understanding that so many organizations lack right now? Yeah, right on. You know, from two angles, one is 
Leaders need to, as we were saying before, Eric, they, they really need to catch that vision for end-to-end -end strategy execution and treat it as its own function process muscle that needs to be built. You know, it's, it's, I would argue, as important as the other functions, because if you can't make change, if you can't get ideas into action, kind of doesn't matter how good the ideas are, right? And we have to be able to change. So one is just saying, listen, this strategy execution is something we need to invest in and make it its, its own thing, right? Accountability end to end. Um, but but coinciding with that, a, a good way to make change is to actually introduce capabilities uh, and value streams as organizing constructs and um, with some ownership. So just to give you a real example, and by the way, listen, I change happens one step, one person, one day at a time. All right. So I, I definitely understand the journey here, but um, just to paint a picture of, of what is possible. Um, one organization I worked with for a very long time, what, when they started orienting around capabilities, they specifically focused on the customer experience, the customer facing capabilities, which I think is a really good place to start or constituent if you're a government and nonprofit. So they took those capabilities and they started to put executive ownership around it. Now you can put one executive owning a capability, but more realistically for something like customer, you're going to cross products and business units. So there was a customer, customer leadership council that actually owned those capabilities. They owned the investment in those capabilities, the direction, those capabilities, the architects, of course, were informing them. And then there's also the, the other perspective that says, okay, we're building capabilities, but how are they being used in value streams? Because these are reusable building blocks. So not necessarily saying you have to have ownership on value streams, but making sure that you also bring the value stream perspective to it. So really starting to like orient investment and ownership around capabilities is another good way to make this change. Right? Yeah. It seems like organizations sort of start to do what you just described by putting in a PMO, you know, building a program management office or some bigger organizations a lot of times will have like a strategic projects group. And so a lot of what you're talking about sometimes will sort of fall under those areas. But to your point, I think you're talking about something that's different, which is taking that a step further, which is we're going to deliberately focus on customer experience or whatever the capability is. And then, you know, the strategic projects or the PMO can support that. But it's it, it's a bit different way of thinking, right? You, you nailed it. This thinking we're talking about is a bit further upstream and it just shapes work at a very macro level. Mm -hmm. Then it can go into the PMO or the agile teams or whatever you got to, to actually figure out the work from there. It is the macro level picture. You're exactly right. Yeah. yeah well, well put macro, macro level yeah. picture. And here's a question I'm super excited to ask you. It came in about two minutes ago and I was really excited to ask you this because I think it's a great <laughs> from uh, Emerson on YouTube asks, how do you emerge from technology chaos to an organized capability flex organization? I love this question because this is this is my world, right? This is what, and you've probably seen a lot of it too. Organizations that get bogged down and wrapped up in technology initiatives and technology deployments. So how do you move from that technology chaos, which is well put, I hate to say it, but that, that is an accurate description of many technology initiatives. How do you migrate from that to organized capability flex organization? Absolutely. Well, so, so first of all, one thing that really helps, I find, is a bigger why. People like need a reason to do stuff. Transformation is usually a good reason. Customer experience could be a good reason. Regulatory can be a good reason, right? So 
people like need a bigger why that helps us to rally around it. Um, but, but from, <laughs> I love it too, from technology chaos to capability flex. So good. Um, you know, honestly, there's a, there's just a dig in and do the work play here, which is understand your capabilities to your apps or software services, right? Understand that relationship. Your capabilities will be, have some priority or some strategic differentiation importance. So now you know how important the capabilities are. So with the relationship between capabilities and apps, you can start to illuminate where we have issues, where we have redundancy, but most importantly, not looking through all that application chaos, but looking through the lens of the business. And, you know, I've done these views and people start to say like, we have 145 apps supporting what the same thing like what are you talking about what do you mean what is even going on so you can start to create these high level um you know heat maps and in awareness around what is happening and then create a roadmap prioritized by the importance of those capabilities or how they're feeding into the strategy or whatever you're doing right now so that you're making you know investments and fixes over time having said that i tr trust me i understand organizations are um are huge and there's a lot of chaos you could also um, with you could pick a reasonable scope. You don't want to go too narrow or you're going to miss the point, but you could also pick a scope of that and just, you know, start doing capability apps and kind of do this, you know, um, streamlining process for just a part of the business as well, but scope it by the business. Don't scope it by the technology organization, right? Always bring it back to the business context. Yeah. And this is also, by the way, a great way to get the business and technology people working together. Right. And in solving this problem together, taking ownership and really understanding what's happening and working together towards, um, you know, the, the roadmap forward. Kind of leading into question, but it, it seems like the, the ideal answer would be don't go into technology initiatives without first doing this business architecture. But if you have already if you find yourself, you're already in knee deep in the technology chaos situation. Tell me what you think of this thought. This is just me responding you know, kind of my gut reaction but it seems like if you're in technology chaos there's nothing wrong with hitting the the pause button saying hey let's time out we're not aligned we're not on the same page we're not heading in the right direction here let's hit hit a timeout on the technology initiative and maybe do some of this business architecture activity which will help us get better clarity and alignment on the technology initiative would that be a would that or some other solution be a way out of that technology chaos situation that you're talking about I couldn't agree more. Slow down to speed up later. That is the time to pause, right? Because there is likely a smarter way through this. Absolutely, Eric. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Good. Yeah. And, and, but I, I also want to echo the really good point you made, right? Because especially in big organizations where you have a lot of legacy, right? There's like, how do we fix the stuff we have today? But you did mention too, how do we not let it happen again tomorrow? And there are a lot of things we can do, not the least of which, as you're saying, is, you know, thinking about the business architecture before we invest in something. Um, or even I've seen organizations, they have a check. They have a checkpoint um, within, you know, at whatever level um, before an initiative is going to be approved. Like, is it going to increase tech debt? Is it going to decrease tech debt? Is it going to stay the same? Right. So we can also put an archer-based checkpoint in there as well and get real serious about heading it off too. Right, right. We're here with Wendy Kloon talking about business architecture and how it can enable better digital transformations. We're going to continue the conversation when we come back from a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Can't bring the 
If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 86. We're here in the midst of a conversation with Wendy talking about business architecture and how it can enable a better digital transformation and better outcomes. Yeah, here's a, a follow-up question, sort of similar to the technology chaos question, but a little bit different. Um, and this is maybe even more common than the technology chaos question. Um, this is over from on YouTube. This question is how to transform operational processes without disrupting daily business operations activity. So all this stuff we're talking about, building capabilities, looking at architecture and getting that alignment, how do we do that in a way that doesn't disrupt what we're doing day to day, you know, even in the current state, regardless of whether it's right or wrong, or we're trying to change how much we're trying to change it. How do we, how do we keep that current state going while we're trying to change, make some of the changes? Yeah. And, and I think part of it is just really, as this, this person is asking here, it's just, first of all, having awareness that that is something we need to balance, right? So I'll just think of a very, um, it's not a simple transformation, but like a simple example of um, working with an organization where we were re-engineering the change of address processes because over a very large Fortune 500 organization, it was pretty serious issues and very disconnected across the different product areas. So what we had done is, is create a, a target state about where we're going and how that's going to change and streamline the processes over time. And so once we have an idea of where we're going, then we can back up and be deliberate about what's exactly happening today and how are we shifting over time, right? There may be a not just an end state, here's where we're going, but there might be different horizons of how we're rolling out those changes. So it's just the awareness uh, of you know the, the very question itself on how to balance that disruption and move people to a new uh, you know a new state over time in the most logical way and um, it's just understanding the human change of it as well right I mean that's the most important thing it's just all the communications and just really orchestrating this in a way that makes sense mm -hmm. right yeah makes total sense what do you, what do you think of this comment Wendy uh, from Gasan over on on LinkedIn? Tech doesn't matter. Business processes do. Do you agree? Disagree? Have a different thought there? Good question, right? Um, well, the technology is there in support of the business. And yes, I will all, all day long, I will say, listen, the lines between business and technology are blending in the coolest ways. So how we leverage technology is also very strategic. It's not just automating the business. But, um, but at the end of the day, I agree with him from the sense of um, it's all about the business. It's about the business process, but it's about the business and what the business is trying to do, where it's trying to go, what it's trying to deliver. Also, the capabilities, right? Those re those things we can do. The technology makes it real, right? So it's always thinking through that business lens, even if it's a technology conversation. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah it's, it's hard to separate, even if you want to, you know, separate technology, business, people, you know, that's, that's why they say people process technology. And then of course, strategy is, uh, mm-hmm. I, I always add that as sort of the fourth dimension of yeah. people process technology and strategy. Yes. Uh, yes. Yes. I want to thank, uh, Emerson on, uh, whoops, I just lost it. Emerson on LinkedIn, um, says, uh, was giving me some motivational support here. Tell me I got this uh, after my little, uh, technical screw up or glitch there. So thank you for that. Appreciate the the support. Um, so I wanted to ask another question of, um, what are some of the challenges of deploying this business architecture concept? So say, say I'm an organization that loves what you're saying and I want to leverage this concept and do more of this in my organization? What are some of the biggest challenges I might face or that you see organizations face as they try to do this? Yeah, it's, it is the mindset that we were talking about. And I feel like the, um, the, the, the audience here is also reflecting for us. It's that mindset. We're not used to thinking enterprise across silos. We're not used to thinking in structured ways about what we do. That's just so foreign. Another challenge though, but these are the fun challenges. Another challenge is once you start leveraging business architecture, Chris, remember it's not about the business architecture, it's about the results. Once you start saying, hey, we have a change of address problem that is crossing all of our product lines and it's impacting our customers because they have products that could have product with any of us. But our portfolios are set up to fund by product or our leaders are set up to make decisions and be measured by their specific area. And you have to have the bold, courageous leaders that will do the right thing for the enterprise. And you start to break down those barriers. Right. So so it's the, the, the change in thinking that business architecture brings forth. It will push against the organization's inertia right? And how it works. Um, It will also do things such as, um, I really don't like this transparency because it's illuminating that I invested in this solution and it didn't make sense, or I built the fifth instance of this thing, right? I don't really want that sort of dirty laundry to be aired. I don't want that transparency. So it's um, the very nature of what it's good at starts to reveal some issues in the organizations. And that can be difficult because people can, in a change management way, they they push back in ways that um, uh, it, it, it seemingly unrelated. It sounds like a, this stuff is a great idea, but we're just too busy right now. You know, come see me next year, right? So um, that those are the challenges: the mindset, and then just the change that starts to happen from thinking enterprise. I also think. One of the challenges, and this is part of why I wrote the book, is to just get more and more knowledge about how to really introduce business architecture, how to have it be very value driven, not, you know, mapping and modeling driven, because that doesn't usually gain a lot of traction. And then how do you really integrate it into the organization with other processes and other teams and things like that? So it's the human stuff is is the challenge. And, you know, a little bit of know-how can help us overcome that. But you know what I really like, Eric? It's conversations like this. I feel like we are opening a new global conversation around strategy execution and its possibility, right? Because as we said, change really comes from the top. Yeah. Yeah. And it, you you hit an interesting point, which is that, and I'm paraphrasing what I interpreted you to say, which is that a lot of times organizations view 
Um, this is an initiative that has to compete with other initiatives and other resources, just like a tech initiative or process improvement or whatever, whatever it is. Uh, but it sounds like what you're talking about, though, if I'm understanding you correctly, is business architecture is more, a more fundamental thing. It's not like a project and initiative. It's more of a mindset or how would you how would you describe it? It's a mindset way of operating. It's a, it's a more fundamental thing, it seems like. Oh, you are spot on correct. And some people do look at it like it as an initiative. And that's definitely not the way to look at it. It's not temporary. It's not delivering something. Um, business architecture, you can think about it as a function. You think about it as a discipline. You can think about it as a practice. It's some. It's akin to other things that might have a center of excellence, like customer experience design or business process management or organizational design, you know, organization design, organizational change management. It's kind of in those, I call them change delivery disciplines. So I think about it as a discipline. And you are so exactly right though. The, it's, it's building this function, this capacity into an organization. Um, and along with that comes a specific team and business architects that have a specific role to inform and translate strategy and help other people use the business architecture. But ideally, we want everyone in the organization to be able to understand and use the business architecture and just have it woven into their daily, you know, sort of decision making in very relevant ways. That's when it will really take hold. So it's definitely not an initiative. You're right. Right. Absolutely. Now, I have two questions here from the audience. I'm going to combine into one. Um, I'll start with sort of the summary question, and then there's a there's a follow-up that is a little bit more detailed. But um, the summary headline of the question is, even before the challenge is, where should organizations start? And this is from Kyler over on LinkedIn. And I'm going to add a follow-up question, which is sort of it ties it all together. Uh, this is from uh, Jeanette over on LinkedIn. And she says, our entire business has historically been structured by industrial flow, not customer experience. These were built in the days of industrialization. We now are in the area of digitalization. The structure and even the processes are designed for, and I have to hide it to be able to read the rest, um, are designed for industrial scale, not digital scaling. What if we could start from scratch in a digital world? What would business structure look like? And so I'm just giving that example from Jeanette, but maybe to simplify or, or to kind of bring it back to the, the summary, back to Kyler's question of, just if you're an organization, whether you're starting out and or if you envision a situation where you could hit the reset button or sort of a, a start over with this business architecture concept, how would you get started? You know, what, what are some tips that you, you found to be successful in that case? Yeah, well, well first of all, I, I even want to say I work with startups and the architecture applies to anyone. Right. We kind of don't think about that way. We grow and then we like get the problems and then we figure it out. But the, the, I would say the anchors, even for a startup, are the business model, right? So business model canvas, the value streams, the capabilities, high level. The, I mean, I know I've said it a lot of times, but literally those are the anchors. Everything else will connect to them. So it's even having an understanding of, of what those things are. Um, I do love Jeanette's point here around being structured around industrial flow, not customer experience. So just taking it back to something like the business canvas and saying, what is the value that we deliver? And to whom? Who are those customers? What products and services do we offer? And what is the experience that they're going to actually have um, to consume those? I, I, I mean, that is the guiding light, uh, the customer or the constituent or whoever it is that we're serving. And I think especially in our digital world and thinking about starting over, I would be thinking value, value, value. 
products and services. And then behind that, what are the capabilities I need to build to do that? Having them very flexible. What are the experiences I need to design the value streams to orchestrate them? I mean, those would be my key building blocks. And again, just kudos to Jeanette saying, it's about the customer, it's about the value, or I just even think about working in digital ecosystems, right? In the value exchange we have, there's still a very deliberate decision on what value are we going to create versus other people and how do we work together for mutual benefit? So right on, right yeah. on. Yeah, yep. yeah, and that's that's the key. And so it's, you know, startups might have a bit of an advantage actually because they can start with a clean slate and get this mentality baked into their DNA at an early phase, which is easier to your point yeah. earlier. It's easier than trying to overcome that inertia that you were talking about. Spot on. And I, and I have seen, Eric, investors and partners that are more likely to work with those organizations because they can tell their story better, they know what they're doing, um, and they have more of a, a comfort uh, of where the organization is actually going and how they're going to get there. Yeah. yeah. And here's a um, comment or data point from YouTube, which is that 80% of businesses surveyed say that their company still suffers from too many manual processes and 79% believe that they have a lot of difficulties collaborating within their entire organization. Um, sounds about right. I, you know, I don't know about the exact percentages, but it sounds about right as far as the majority of companies struggling with these things. And it seems like that's just adding some uh, credibility to the, to the need for business architecture and the, the need to think through this sort of stuff. Indeed. Um, Indeed. Yeah, because so, it is the, the macro level. When I talk about value streams, that's for the whole organization, business unit and product and silo agnostic. So spot on. That's that's exactly right. So you've started to touch on this again, but I think coming back to it and maybe digging a little bit deeper uh, would be helpful here, which is to, this this uh, for organizations that are about to start a digital transformation or a business uh, transformation or any sort of change initiative. And, and again, I'm use, intentionally use the word initiative because those are initiatives. What can organizations do or how can business architecture be used to establish that blueprint for whatever that change initiative is going to be? Yep. Um, and organizations will use a transformation or an initiative, big initiative as, as the impetus. <clears throat> the, the key is to, you know, it's like there's one thing we got to do, which you're not going to be surprised to hear me say. You got to get the baseline in place. You got to get the capabilities and value streams. Now, having said that, there's ways to streamline that. There's ways to jumpstart that. There are reference models. There's ways to pare it back. Um, but you have to have that. So even if you were starting for an initiative, you would build the capability map with the enterprise in mind. You don't want to build it siloed for the initiative because that's going to only drive the silos deeper, right? So you want to build a capability map for the organization very lightly and then go deep for the things that are relevant for you. And if I was doing a transformation and I had a set of relevant value streams, not all of them, a set of relevant value streams and the capabilities I needed, then I would first um, leverage that to translate the goals and objectives of that initiative or transformation by the value streams and capabilities. I would use that as a way to then describe the changes that we're making, especially if I was breaking it out into, you know, different work packages. I'm just using these words very loosely because it depends on the, the level of the initiative. Um, and um, so, so, it, so, so, so then, I mean, that, that's kind of really the, the core translation for an initiative. 
Um, and then if I have those building blocks of capabilities and value streams that I know our initiative is working on, I can also use it as the Rosetta Stone to figure out other other people in the organization doing the same thing to those capabilities. Maybe we need to be partnering and having some conversations to collaborate or maybe think about reuse. So that's a that's kind of I mean, I could give a lot of examples, but that's kind of the core way to use it on just a, a transformational. Now, depending on that initiative and what it's doing, let's say with technology, you could overlay business architecture in different ways. Um, for example, business architecture can help to inform cloud strategy and migration or some of the things that we've talked about before around tech debt or, or application portfolio management. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, back to your point earlier about the, the blueprint, um, people wouldn't build your dream. You wouldn't build your dream house without having a blueprint. And I think that to me, that's the simplest, most fundamental way to describe how business mm -hmm. architecture can enable a digital or business transformation. For sure. Yeah. So and then, mm -hmm. it sounds like so far um, from the comments I'm reading here, you've sold two copies of your book. Um, <laughs> people people that have admitted to buying your book already. So Gassan <laughs> and Tyler both said they've already bought your book. So congratulations on a couple more sales during this live stream. But um, just to sort of wrap up the conversation here, and I really appreciate you being here today. What? Um, how can people find your book and learn more about you? Where, where can they buy the book more specifically and learn more about you? Yeah, you bet. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn. You can see my name. I'm pretty easy to find. Not too many names like that. So LinkedIn's a good place to get me. And then getting the book, it is available worldwide. If it's not available in your region, I would like to hear about it. We'll, we'll, we'll see how we can make that happen. Um, so online resellers. And as of the 20th, it should be in bookstores as well. If it's not, again, ask for it. Um, but you can most easily find it on my website. So strategyintoreality.com. And there is a specific um, menu item under the book where it says book orders. And you can find where the book might be available in your region if you're having a hard time doing it. Otherwise, the, the big sites will have it. Right. Great. Well, yep. So strategyintoreality.com is the best way in that that you've got a nice landing page there describes you your bio it's got a link to buy the book um you offered one to me and i appreciate it. i've read parts of it not the whole thing yet but it's a great book it's really good i mean it's a i like that it's uh it's not super academic but it's it's, it's a good combination of there is theory in it but it's very practical too which i always tend to like that kind of stuff better than the overly academic stuff so uh, nice job on that well, thank you very much, Wendy. Appreciate you being on the show. Great conversation, really interesting stuff that builds on a lot of topics we've we've talked about in previous episodes. A lot to unpack here, so we're going to dive into some follow-up discussion here with Kyler and I. But first, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, Turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. 
Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 86. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham. You can find new episodes of the show every Wednesday on YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, as well as all of the audio podcast platforms out there in the marketplace. So be sure to check that out every Wednesday with new episodes. Um, so Kyler, we just had Wendy on the show talking about business architecture. And I don't know about you, but this is it was really interesting for me because a lot of what Wendy said was very um straightforward. It made a lot of sense. It wasn't overly complicated, but yet organizations don't really think that way. Um, and by that way, I mean all the stuff we just talked about with Wendy. So what were some of your takeaways and observations from the, the conversation? Yeah, well, I almost feel as though there, if there was like some standardized way we could require reading for all executives, this would be you know, a, a baseline book of, of 101, how you really truly lead an organization to be successful. Um, so such a great overview and, and insights. And and I, I really like the word architecture. And it's so interesting that you had this conversation because I was trying to think about with some of our blogs and some of our thought leadership, how we really integrated architecture into more of a holistic view as opposed to just system design or system architecture. So like organizational architecture or human behavior architecture, those types of things, because it takes a really tactical approach to things that really do need to be addressed, but are often overlooked. Uh, so I really like that idea of, of being able to, uh, create that and most importantly, break it down into those kind of 10 steps she was talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it kind of gets into the whole design thinking concept that a lot of organizations are, are pursuing. It gets into, um, you know, that she used the word a few times, the end-to-end -end view of the organization. So it really sort of forces organizations out of the weeds, kind of looking at the big picture of how it all ties together and how all these moving parts integrate and can be better aligned and more deliberate in enabling uh, an overall organizational strategy. Yeah. And that concept of the golden thread that she kind of talked about, because I think she made a really important point is you might be very clear on the strategy at the executive level. But when you go through the organization, it gets diluted into that message just because of the volume and the different impact that it's having. So having the ability to have your frontline workforce understand as much as your executive workforce what your strategy is, then you have kind of a clear roadmap to achieving that reality because the entire organization is aligned. I wanted to ask you, does that ever happen? You know, it seems like one of those things of of organizations either do it really well or they do it really poorly, and there's no kind of in between there in cracking the code of that middle ground. Yeah, it's a that's an interesting point. I, I think you're probably right. I think that you know if you let if you let gravity and inaction sort of take hold, you're probably going to drift. You're going to see your organization drift towards that you know, handling it really poorly uh, because you're not deliberately focusing on it. You're not, um, you're not taking that time to, to sort of rethink how you view the organization. And, and the, the problem with it, with business architecture concept, and I don't mean this in, in a bad way, it's just, it, it's a challenge, 
is that it does require a different way of thinking. It requires you sort of baking that mentality into the DNA of the organization. So it's more of a cultural change is sort of what I took away from the conversation with Wendy. It's more of a cultural change and a more mindset shift than it is an initiative with a predefined start date, end date, clear objectives and deliverables and budgets and timelines and all that stuff. Not to say you can't have a plan to support it. You, you absolutely should have that, but but it's something that's more than that. It's more than just a single initiative. It's more of a, a mindset and cultural shift. And I think that's probably why, to your point, so many organizations don't do it well, or more specifically, they do it poorly. Yeah. And, and the thing that I feel like is a really daunting task and gives me some anxiety even to talk about as, you know, a business leader, but you, you might get that, that business architecture foundation down, but it's really having that organizational agility to change it if it needs to. And to your point about cultural nuances or responding to demands within the marketplace that are ever changing, especially in our current climate of business, I wonder how that organizational agility is achieved. Uh, because organizations, you know, they're a living, breathing thing. They're constantly changing. They're going through, you know, new employees are coming, tenured employees are exiting. And how do you continue to make sure that you're kind of riding the wave of being able to go back to your business architecture and use it as that foundational point that you mentioned? It's a great point. I, I hadn't really thought of it in that context before, but I think you're right. I mean, if, as you were asking that question or making that point, it made me think about how another challenge with this business architecture concept that Wendy talks about that's so important is you have a competing, you have competing priorities or competing approaches with agility and agile approaches, which are more focused on speed and just get something out there, get a minimum viable product out there, get feedback from the users and then tweak it based on that feedback. And it's sort of, you know, designed to, to move fast and to deliver value faster. And that's, a good noble goal. And there are ways to leverage these concepts of agile and agility into an organization while still preserving that more holistic business architecture approach, but, but they're sort of in conflict with one another. You know, that if you go too far down the agile path, you're going to dilute and undermine this business architecture concept that Wendy's talking about on the flip side, I imagine in, in, in now that you're saying it, it would have been a great question to ask Wendy. It, what if on the flip side, you focus so much on business architecture that you're not getting stuff done? You know, you're not, you're not executing, you're not delivering initiatives that align with that because you're, you're spending so much time up front doing the business architecture. In some cases, it's warranted because you're so misaligned as an organization. You have such a fragmented, siloed organization that you, you need to go through that pain and messiness and heavy lifting behind defining that architecture. But you don't want to do it so much so that you're totally diminishing the you know, you're losing time and, and money and losing opportunity to, to leverage technology sooner. So I don't have a good answer for you other than say, I would think they're kind of in conflict with one another and, and an organization has to find the right balance. But the good news is I would say most organizations we work with are the pendulum is too far over to the agility or trying to be agile, trying to execute, trying to move fast. And then you have software vendors and system integrators that, that uh, further encourage that behavior because it benefits them because they can sell more software that way. If you just move fast, don't worry about business architecture, just go deploy technology because that's going to help you get more immediate business value. So you have all these competing forces that are going to push you towards the agility, you know, the more agile side of things, whereas organizations need to step back and look at that overarching business architecture and have a clear vision of that blueprint first before they get too far down the path of technology. 
Absolutely. And I think that approach, like you said, it is so important um, and really doing that pre-work, that phase zero work to understand what is the data and where are you now? And that that business architecture has to match the identity of your organization. And you can't throw an agile approach into a very standardized organization or it's just going to create that technology chaos that one of our um, users so you know eloquently laid out um, in that conversation. Uh, and then, you know, same with the standardization side, there has to be a balance that matches the goals and priorities and overall identity of the organization, as opposed to what some other third parties is telling you, you should do. Um, so reading books like this, you know, talking to people joining this conversation is a really important way to understand that. I think especially piggybacking off of our hot topics and our emerging technology, it can be very easy to say, oh, this is just a plug and play solution. Let's just go for it uh, and not understand the impacts that something like that can have. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. And I think that's a tricky balancing act that a lot of organizations will struggle with. But to your point and to something Wendy said too, you have to understand where you are today, where you're starting from and for better, for worse, you know, you need to understand what, where the beginning of the journey is and then ultimately how you're going to get to whatever that future state is. Yeah. And understanding that future state, I feel like we should almost change the name to what she was saying is the value. How are you creating value um, and customer experience, no matter you know what your customer is, if it's a B2B customer, B2C, it doesn't matter. What value do you create and what's the problem that you need to solve to be more competitive and valuable um, with your service or product? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Well, it's a good transition into kind of going into the human side of what does that mean? Um, as you and as Wendy kind of talked about, the thesis of that conversation is you can't do business architecture without understanding the human dynamic um, behind what that means for your organization to be successful. Yeah, absolutely. And so what we thought we'd do is dive deeper into that human side of things by getting into organizational emotional intelligence and leadership emotional intelligence and how that factors into transformation in general. And so what we wanted to do is actually play you a clip from a previous episode um, where Jed Hafer was on the show and he's an emotional intelligence expert. He's been on the podcast a couple of times, but it's been several months and many of you may have missed that interview, but it's a really good interview. It's, it's sort of a different angle and a different perspective uh, as it relates to digital transformation and more specifically the organizational change and human factors within transformation. So we thought we'd sort of think outside the box with our guest, and then, which is why we want to replay this clip for you, is have someone who's not a traditional digital transformation type person, but someone who instead is more coming at it from an emotional intelligence perspective and talk about some of the organizational dynamics that go along with that. So we're going to have Jed on the show. We're going to play this clip, but first we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or 
or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 86. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham. And as I mentioned before the break, we want to play you a clip here today to really build on this whole concept of business architecture, which includes organizational change and the people side of transformation. And that, that was the uh, interview we had earlier in this episode with Wendy. So we want to build on that now and go down deeper into the people side of change and more specifically talk about emotional intelligence and how it relates to leadership overall transformation, um, transformations in general, and organizational emotional intelligence as well. So with us, uh, in a past episode, we had Jed Hafer on the show to talk about emotional intelligence, and he's an expert in the field. So with that being said, let's cut to the clip with Jed talking about emotional intelligence. Uh, Eric, it's a great pleasure. Thanks for having me back. Absolutely. So I guess before we jump into this whole concept of organizational culture and how it affects change and transformation, how it affects organizations in general, maybe tell us a little bit about your background. What, what do you do and how did you get to this point in your career? Sure. I'm always doing a few different things, uh, which is it's cheaper than than ADHD medications to just have a few <laughs> different uh, focuses. It's a good way to look and at it. So I have uh, I have a company called Mission Peace, and uh, we're largely a training company uh, focused on law enforcement and really authority figures who have to deal with difficult situations. Um, so we've done uh, security teams and, and just about just about any group of people who might have to deal with angry and possibly aggressive people. Um, so there's a high premium on emotional intelligence and de-escalation in our trainings and a lot of a lot of proactive things uh, so that we can resolve some of those conflicts before they even start. And then I also <clears throat> work with a company called Irvin Education Consultants uh, on social media. Uh, Scott Irvin, the, the, the man behind it, is known as the Kid Whisperer. Um, he did not pick that name, but he's just really, really good with kids. And so people uh, kind of gave him that name. And then, of course, it sticks on social media. But he's just masterful at helping organizations, in this case, mostly schools, uh, change. And I've gotten to uh, learn his process and watch what he does. And there's, there's a lot of uh, similarities between Love and Logic, uh, my, my former job, uh, where we would go in and, and do a lot of training and consulting for schools just to make them really more peaceful and calm places, uh, better places for teachers to, to work and, and kids to learn. So hopefully, yeah, some of those lessons that, that I've uh, brought from kind of the people side uh, are, are relevant and interesting to, to your listeners. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm excited to sort of connect the dots here between some of these, um, you know, like keep calling it higher stake situations where in some cases it could be life or death is in the case of a, an authority, a police or authoritative uh, figure. Um, or, or in a school, it could be, do we get snacks or not? Which is pretty high stakes. <laughs> right. Well, in all seriousness though, development, education of a, of a child, you know, that's that, Many would view that as a higher stake uh, situation than a corporate environment. So I, that's why I'm really fascinated or want to learn a little bit more about this to see you know, what the parallels are, maybe what some of the lessons are we could take away into the corporate world. Um, yeah, just at the deepest level, it's, it's helping human beings get along better. And that seems to just be the one thing that I'm, that I'm really good at. And I really love doing it. It sounds so simple, yet 
yet not many people can do it well. <laughs> not many organizations. It's not easy. Right. So, so I guess to start then, what, you know, you think about organizational culture, where you, whether you're talking about a police department, a school or a corporation, um, there's this whole nebulous term that a lot of us don't fully understand, which is just culture. Um, it's hard to, hard to touch and feel. You, you can't, sometimes you just feel it. Sometimes you can't see it or touch it. Um, but what, how would you describe organizational culture just sort of in its simplest terms? I like to think of it as the weather that we can make. Um, you know, you can never you probably wish you could control the weather. You can never really control it in our organizations. I think I get to make to a degree, I get to make the weather in my office, in our meetings, in our buildings, however it's going, uh, because we can be intentional, we can set some tones that, that just sort of hang in the air, set a tone of expectation that will hopefully just kind of hang in the air that, that says, this is how we do it. This is who we are. And this is how we do things and can create in, in, in positive terms, a wonderful sense of belonging, a wonderful sense of, of meaning in our work beyond just we're, we're doing things. And uh, when it's, when it's bad, as, as many of us have experienced, when the culture of an organization is bad, it can get really toxic and it can drag everybody down. And obviously as human beings, human nature can kick in and we can become uh, pretty negative and, and, and pretty full of, of complainers, even generally positive and productive people can get in that culture of complaining. And it, it seems to, uh, to cycle and, and, and get worse. So I really like to think of it as, and we talked to, to teachers about this in my classroom, I can make the weather. I can set the tone. I can set the expectations and the more intentional I am and, and thoughtful about that. Uh, it's amazing. We can really have an impact. We never seem to be able to get the culture perfect. It'll always ebb and flow because it, it is somewhat like the weather. There's some uh, elements that we can't control or predict. But it's wonderful if we can be more intentional. And that's what I really try to help people do is be more intentional about setting the tone and, and being proactive about how do I really want it to feel here? How do I want if a new person came in, how would they view this organization? Pretty quickly, we make those judgments. We look around and say, oh, I can I can tell what kind of an organization this is uh, based on the posters that this teacher hung up in her classroom. I can tell some things about how it's going to be here. Right. Yeah, that's super interesting. I never thought of culture in that in that exact way of, of just the weather that you create. So it's it sort of is something you can feel and and in some cases touch depending on the weather. But it it's just it sort of sets the context and the tone. It doesn't necessarily dictate or determine day to day outcomes. Maybe not at that granular level, but the overall mood and feel and environment. Whether you're gonna have a good day or a bad day, um, that sort of thing. It, that's a good way to to frame it. Yes, and as leaders, we have a little more control over those things than it will sometimes seem again because of intentionality people will get sick of hearing me say that word today but it pulls us to greatness right. um, intentionality even in a de-escalation situation if we're talking about a really angry person a person who's trying to calm that person down intentionality can win the day uh there's even some science behind it our our brains have these wonderful neurons called mirror neurons and what they basically do is say what's everybody else doing and we make sure that we relatively match up. If you've ever had this in a meeting where somebody yawns and mm -hmm. then other people start yawning, yeah. that's mirror neurons. Or it could be that I was talking is the other possibility. <laughs> All right. But mirror neurons cause our brains to say, okay, I need to kind of match what everyone else is doing. It's the same reason if you're talking really loud at a party and all of a sudden it gets quiet and you're the only one and that feeling of embarrassment. 
mirror neurons. So we use those in this case to our advantage. The intentional person can cause the person to pace uh, where, where they're at. Uh, unlike I think last time I was on, we talked about the Jerry Springer effect where people get louder and louder and, and less right. and less in control. Uh, this, this goes the other way. The intentional person can bring that other person down. And it's not just about anger or escalation. Mirror neurons work in any, any group environment. Uh, so the person who's being intentional, and it might be about smiling or being more friendly or showing more interest in my coworkers, that intentional person can have an effect on everybody else, which is wonderful. Right, right. So it, it it's um, so when you think about um, the w- the culture, so we, we talked about the mirror neurons and, and sort of the, the weather that we can create. What what are some of the specific dimensions of culture? Like if we were to unpack it a little bit more and describe it, what what are some of those major components of culture? I was thinking about this before talking to you because I was thinking what you know what would be valuable, you know, elements of an organizational culture with some of the organizations that you all work with. And I know you work with a wide variety. So I was trying to think of just valuable traits. And I think the healthiest organizations, a big one we don't always think about is curiosity. Hmm. Uh, I want, I want a culture of learning and growth and curiosity that we all look around and we love learning and we love, we love learning new things. Um, I think organizations can definitely get, we sometimes seek comfort as human beings so we can get in that fixed mindset versus the growth mindset where I want things to stay the same. I want them to stay comfortable and familiar so that no new stuff comes into my little world and disrupts my, my comfort and my stability. Uh, so I think a healthy organization is kind of the opposite where we're always looking around, not, not distracted from the important things, but just curious to always find out, what's new? Is there a better way? Again, thinking in terms of growth and improvement to me, regardless of the field, um, whether it be a, a, you know, school or a software company, that culture of, of curiosity and learning super Hmm. valuable because we're always just by definition, we're going to be getting better and we're not going to get stuck in some of the old ways, especially the ones that are, that are maybe less productive or less healthy. Right. Yeah. I got a couple more, uh, a culture of high expectations. And this is another thing that uh, working with a lot of schools, I've been in schools now in all but five states, either four or five states I haven't been to, uh, working, training and consulting with teachers and educators. A culture of high expectations is amazing in terms of of what it can do. Uh, People tend to, and I see this especially with kids, they tend to rise or fall to the level of expectations. They never rise to low expectations. It's weird how that works out. Right. But I've seen so many wonderful educators who have kids performing at this level and achieving at this level that other people would say that's not even possible. Uh, not that long ago, we were at school in Ohio and, uh, and Scott Irvin, the guy I work with, the kid whisperer was talking about, we're going to have the hallways completely quiet. This is an elementary school. Some of these kids are pretty easily distracted. They had kids that were on autism spectrum. So a lot of noise makes it real tough for, for some of those kids to learn. And he said, well, we'll have quiet hallways in this school. And it was a group of teacher's aides that we were training. One of them said, that is impossible. We will never have kindergartners quiet in the hallway. And right on cue, this group of kindergartners, uh, it was the class of Mr. Bates, uh, a wonderful kindergarten teacher. They walked by perfectly silent, 
just this like perfect little row of ducks. <laughs> they had been to the library, so they're all hugging their little library books that they had. And uh, 100%, I don't mean kind of quiet, they were 100% silent in a perfect row, walked by on cue. <laughs> and, uh, and Scott just kind of went, and it, it, this this person wasn't it's not like they had never been around kids this person just had probably fallen down into this level of expectation of it's just not possible i think healthy organizations especially from the leadership there's just a culture of really high expectations meaning we're going to be uh we're going to do great work here whatever it is and not because we're desperate and we have to meet these margins or we're going to go out of business it's not that level of high expectation it's it's, this is just who we are. Right. Uh, to me, those are some of the best, the best organizations. One more thought on that is, again, the high expectations don't come because, you know, if we don't do this, you know, we're, we're screwed. It's, it's not that kind of, of thinking. It's this is who we are. And it translates into beyond just our work. So a culture of service to others. Uh, mm. We just we just celebrated uh, Martin Luther King Day. And one of the great things that he said, so many, but one of them he said is anybody can be great because anybody can serve. And mm-hmm. if you want to be great, you're serving other people. So that culture of service to others, it might be another underrated one. You know, organizations don't necessarily think about this, but I think uh, because we're human beings and we're being good to each other, it affects our overall self-concept. That's another way to think about the culture is our overall self-esteem or self-concept. And so how we view ourselves, well, if I'm always helping people and I'm doing great stuff and service to my fellow humans, uh, I start feeling pretty good about that. I start feel good about myself and us as an organization. This is just who we are. We serve. We do great things for other people. So I, I could give you a million more, but those are three that, that I tried to pick. People don't always think about. I think high expectations, probably a lot of leaders would say, oh, yeah, I do that. I set a culture of, of, of high expectations. Right. But uh I don't know. Not, not every organization I deal with are these uh, front of mind sort of things. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's why I asked the question, because I think a lot of times people think, well, culture, I mean, what is that? I mean, it, it's it's not the weather I can control. The weather just happens. Right. I think that's the way a lot of people uh, approach culture. So I think this is interesting to sort of unpack it a bit more. Um, Especially if we're not being very intentional about it, if we're not thinking about it. Uh, then it, it does seem to just sort of happen and fall yeah. on our heads without us knowing what's going on. Yeah. And I can speak from experience uh, just in, in my last company uh, before I started third stage. Um, ironically, even though I have always done change management types of consulting, I did not focus on the internal culture of the company. I just sort of let it happen. Right. I, I didn't mean anything good or bad by it. I just thought it'll just, you know, people will just sort of, um, you know, march into line and what I expect or whatever. And, and so you just hire a bunch of people without thinking about culture, about how you want to shape it. And it just sort of morphs into something other than what you wanted it to be. And usually when it morphs into something you don't want it to be, it's almost like gravity. It's going to pull you down to something you don't want it to be. It's not, I, I, I don't know if you agree with this or not, but I can't imagine an organization just magically like just stumbling into a great culture without that intentionality that you're talking about. I don't think that's possible. Yeah, you, you don't see that. I, I mean, I, there's certainly organizations that just have a lot of great people. Yeah. And so the culture isn't something they have to work as hard on. But because we're always going to be human beings and we're all uh, flawed and have our have our issues. Uh, some of us, I have I have more issues than uh, National Geographic myself. <laughs> but, 
yeah like you said if i'm not working on it it's probably going to slide just like a lot of our our habits just you know as interpersonal habits if if i'm not being intentional and working on those things they're going to slide down and not not in a good direction gravity it is that's a good that's a good analogy because it's that's going to pull you down if you're not uh working on it yeah absolutely Okay, we're here playing a clip of a conversation between Jed Hafer and myself talking about emotional intelligence and how it relates to digital and business transformations. We have a lot more to get to, but first we're gonna take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. We'll be right back. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 86. You can find new episodes of the show every Wednesday on YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, as well as all the audio podcast platforms. Thanks for listening here today. We're here in the midst of a conversation playing you a clip with Jed Hafer, who's an emotional intelligence expert. And we're talking about how emotional intelligence relates to and can enable better digital transformations. So let's cut back to the clip. Um, so quick question here. Um, well, I blocked some spam that's coming through on YouTube. Um, <laughs> I have to manually block that stuff as it comes through. Um, but here's a, here's a great question that, that I'd be curious to get your your take on uh, Jed, a lot of what you just described is sort of like the aspirational culture, I'd say that, you know, curiosity of learning or curiosity and learning high expectations, service to others, et cetera. That's sort of a great definition for what makes, what potentially makes a great culture. But when you're talking about changing a culture, like I recognize that I don't have those traits or maybe other traits that I'm looking for, or would like to see in my organization. Um, how do you approach, you know, how do you get a broader team to induce the change um, because the, because these are the these people are the ones who make it easy or hard to overachieve change and excellence. So I guess it's just a broader question. How do you get people and leadership within the organization to recognize that you know you need to change and how do you get them to change? What are your thoughts? Well, hopefully I don't get hate mail for saying this, but I actually love meetings where I don't love meetings just for meeting's sake. Nobody does, but I love meetings where we get people together and get them excited about things and so i would recommend and we do this we do this at schools let's get everyone together and agree on things that are important to us um core values and what our what our real mission is and typically that's something you can watch people get pretty excited about um, and, and let it be a wide open discussion where we can talk in those excited terms and say, well, this is who we are, again, um, in, a, in a school, one of the ones that will come up, because we'll give some examples or some suggestions, but uh, we preserve the dignity of every single kid. Mm. And, you know, any good educator is going to get fired up about that as a, as a core value, because they're like, yes, you know, and they've seen those instances where 
we didn't preserve the dignity of the kid and it's, it's not good. So that's one thing I, I really recommend is some kind of exercise. I mean, a lot of this is modeled from the leaders, but in that, in that exercise, it's hopefully it's not just the leaders uh, sort of signing on and saying, this is who we are. We're going to, we haven't done this before, but we're going to do some service things. We're going to go out and find people uh, that we can do something for, maybe some people in need and has nothing to do with our product, but we're going to just do it because that's who we are. We're people who care about others. And so, you know, kind of this mixture of leading by example and modeling, but also bringing people in and we will literally a lot of times have the everyone signs physically signs this document and says this is what we agree to and for those who are leaders listening the good news is we can use that later and i so much rather use this to hold somebody accountable all right so in a school you were screaming at that kid can you can you tell me we all agreed we're going to preserve the dignity of our students can you tell me how screaming at that kid was preserving a dignity and it just as human beings we don't want to be incongruent with our with our mm-hmm. values right and so that's to me such a better way to hold somebody accountable to the values that they agreed to versus uh you know i caught you breaking this rule and there's this check mark or whatever i i don't like to be held accountable that way but when someone i who i respect says hey are you does that line up with 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 what you really believe and what your values are it's pretty uh, convicting. And, and so I think it has a, a twofold benefit. We get everyone excited up front saying this is who we are. And then later, if you want to, uh, to me, it's just a more effective way of, of doing it. I realize we have to formalize it in some cases, but to be able to say, I'm going to use this value as the tool to hold you accountable rather than the rule. Right. Um, and again, I'm not against rules. Uh, but but I think I think for me, that's just more effective. I'd much rather be challenged that way than, you know, I may or may not think the rule has a really good uh, reason to exist. Right. But if I physically signed a piece of paper that says this is a value, this is what I believe. Uh, pretty hard for me to not feel some at least self accountability there. Right. Now, now I think you've answered this um, in passing, you know, throughout the discussion here, but maybe I'll ask, ask it anyway, and we can directly tackle this question, which is, you know, why is culture so important to organizational performance and success? Because we're individuals. Ultimately, we, we make our choices as individual human beings. So my, my first real job, one of my first real jobs, I always had several, but one of my first real jobs was a fast food <clears throat> place. And I went in, I got trained by the manager who was a, a high, high expectation, uh, do everything the right way person. And she said, this is how we do fries. And she trained me on that way. And, you know, it's the first thing you learn. And I was like, okay, I know how to do fries. It's pretty simple. She left and my fellow employees came around and they said, let us show you the easier way. The way she showed you was fine, but actually some, there's some unnecessary steps there that don't really accomplish anything this is a little shortcut this is an easier way to do it this is how we do it and i remember being in that immediate dilemma of oh no <laughs> what right. i was told uh does not match what i'm uh experiencing and it is there was almost a panic feeling and mm-hmm. i know you're on the edge of your seats and so <laughs> yes i did it the right way uh which immediately caused in in, in the culture you get those kind of like, oh, you know, teacher's pet, you know, kiss up. 
So the way you were doing comments. it from your the person that left, that was the right way, not the way the other people. Yeah, I did it. Th- I did it the right way, and then my my coworkers instantly. Uh, so the, the the that's a long way of saying, if the, if there's negativity in the culture, it puts that individual, any individual who encounters that, oh, we complain here. Okay, I'm gonna uh, you know I at least have the temptation to follow along with that. Oh, we take shortcuts here. Okay, I have the temptation to follow along with that. If nothing else, maybe I don't. Uh, my coworkers are probably not going to have sat down and say, oh, we're really going to work on a culture of high expectations here and try to influence me that way. Like, like the, the leaders would. And so it's, it's sort of what you said before, if I'm not addressing it and really trying to do these proactive things to make it positive, it's probably going to slide down to some level into negativity. And I think we talked about last time, the most common, I think is just uh, complaining. Uh, we're we're all uh, much much beset and put upon and and uh, oppressed and victimized. Uh, oh, it's so hard, and that's that's the beginning. When I start stop appreciating, wow, this is an awesome thing that I get to do with these awesome people I get to work with, and I start finding myself complaining about it. The unfortunate thing about that is my brain hears that, mm. and my brain hears this sort of unquestioned because as much as we can filter out other things, it's hard to filter out our own voice this is why things like affirmations work right Right. so i hear my own voice joining in in this chorus of complaining and pretty soon oh this is a terrible place uh so it negativity can just be so contagious and i think that's why we have to be on top of this trying to keep the culture healthy because it's just like the human body you know if i'm not working on keeping my body healthy some some unhealthy stuff is going to start happening yeah and uh you're and not just, can just be the, it can be the death of an organization. Yeah. So speaking of that, do you, do you have examples of uh, that you've seen in your career or, or maybe one in particular that stands out of situations where you saw culture drag the company down? Yeah, I, I worked for a nonprofit that helped kids that were in trouble for many years. And by definition, I mean, we, we paid the pay was terrible. And one of the one of the beliefs was, well, that will filter out anybody who might be here for the wrong reasons. Right? If they're here for the money, they're not going to they're not going to stay. Go do something that's much easier that also pays better because it was a hard job and it also paid poorly. Right. Um, so we tended to get really good people with great hearts or we get kind of the other end of the spectrum. They're, they're here because they couldn't get any other job or they're desperate or, or some other, you know, le- less positive motivator that brought them in and so that culture was always a tug of war between the the true believer i would do anything to help these kids and i really believe in their success super positive people on one side and pretty negative pretty toxic people on the other side and it i I could sometimes watch it it was almost like watching a tug of war and unfortunately yeah there were times always ebbed and flowed never was perfect never was so bad that we, we couldn't take good care of the kids. But I watched it at times be, be the, the, the flag got pulled <laughs> too far in this bad direction. And it was really harmful, especially to the, to the, the good employees. And I hate to, you know, sound like I was judging everybody, but you have your employees who really care. And the kids could tell very quickly who really cares and who's just doing this because it's a job or whatever. I think that's true in a lot of fields. Those yeah. people who didn't really care 
could actually have a pretty big impact on the people who were there for the right reasons and did really care. And, you know, it was never, uh, it was never all or nothing, but you could really see that ebb and flow. And sometimes it could be pretty destructive. I think we lost some really good people because they would say, I just can't be around these people who are so negative all the time. Right. Right. Yeah. That's a, that's a great point. And, and um, you know, I, you alluded in, in that example there and also the, the French fry example, you know, making the French fries, you sort of alluded to this thought that, you know, if you have someone up above a leader within the organization that whether they're deliberately doing or not, um, they're having some sort of impact on shaping the culture. In the case of the French fries, it sounds like someone um, who, who was above you sort of affirmed that you were doing it the right way and the other people were, that were telling you to do it a different way were wrong or that wasn't the way the company wanted you to be doing it. It sounds like so leadership and management, how does that all fit in or have you seen that uh, affect the culture as well? Yeah, I think I need to remember as a leader, I, I ought to be giving people some whys. It's another reason to do this kind of who we are, core values, what are we excited about in our mission exercise, getting everybody to, to agree, kind of sign off on it. Uh, for most people without a why, uh, it's pretty easy to slide down, um, you know, again, in a bad direction of whether I've worked with people who quit, who quit smoking, for instance, um, you know, they went to the doctor and they see this really scary picture of their lung and they say, you love your kids, right? Okay. And now all of a sudden I have a super powerful why. If I have a really powerful why, I'm going to do those things that I need to do as a leader. I've got to be giving my people uh the, the the strong why so that and it can't just be making money it can't just be so that you individually make money or that we as a as a company make money it's got to be something more than that uh, that to me i think is the best protector against the french fry scenario <laughs> if those fellow employees all understood oh there is a good reason to do it the right way and we care about that reason uh, then they're they're probably less prone to, to take those uh, shortcuts. So I, I think that's that's what a leader can do to kind of guard against bad culture creep. I don't know if we just invented a term. <laughs> the, the, the creeping in of the sort of contagious among the employees, negative stuff. If we all are uh, at least to some degree focused on the good reason why, the good rationales for why we do things this way, the right way, I think that helps insulate us from some of that. So in your example of the, you know, the schools or the, or, and I'll maybe generalize a little bit more and say, you know, nonprofits or, or any organization where employees have a higher sense of meaning or purpose, you know, beyond just a paycheck, beyond just a job. Um, let's assume it's an organization like that, whether it's a school or nonprofit or whatever. Um, how is it then that you get a bunch of good people that mean well, that have a sense of purpose? How could an organization like that possibly have that, that what you call it culture creep, the culture creep. How could you possibly have that? If, if we all mean, well, we're all good intentioned, we're all trying to do the right thing. How could a, how could a culture possibly become toxic in that sort of environment? I think it's because we're human beings with uh, free will and we can get our feelings hurt. I would say in the, in the more positive organizations, and I'd probably make the case that every organization either is or should be, or at least has the potential to be like that, that, that what we do, there's a higher calling and a higher purpose to it. Even, even if it just looks like, oh, logistically, we're just making these widgets. No, the, 
you know, the, the healthiest and best organizations that I know, they still have a sense of mission that we're going to add value to people's lives. We're going to improve. We're going to make the world a better place. I don't think that's limited to just, yeah, I did. I started in the nonprofit world and then sort of moved into a lot of uh, education organizations. But I, I've seen companies that you wouldn't necessarily off the top of your head say, oh, that's a super benevolent organization. But then they are. In some cases, they're doing some of the most good uh, in the world, even if it's just uh, generosity. And I, I know you know this. Um, but because I have seen, again, organizations full of good people, I think the interpersonal conflict, uh, that thin skinness that we can have, or we get our feelings hurt, um, truly sometimes we're like little kids and like so-and-so got positive attention for doing that thing. And I'm over here going, well, what about me? Right. Uh, just again, that we're human beings. I think it's, it's certainly possible. Uh, if, if you, you could probably see this in a family, mm-hmm. you know, absolutely wonderful people, loving people. And, oh, they don't talk to each other. Right. <laughs> they, they hate each other. They got in a fight at Thanksgiving a few years ago, and they don't talk anymore. And you're like, how is that even possible? Because they're both the nicest people. Of course, that can, that can happen in an organization. Again, I think the prevention for that is partly just the awareness that we always need to be working on and cognizant of this kind of nebulous in the air thing that is the culture. Um, I'm not necessarily a fan of forced uh, team stuff that you know a lot, that causes a lot of people to roll their eyes and I was one of those eye rollers when bosses said we're gonna do this thing uh, that said I think healthy organizations they're always putting out things that help us just get along with each other and appreciate one another better as, as human beings that there's another one we could add in appreciation appreciation mm-hmm. is often an antidote for that infighting and negativity that, that can creep in, even um, between two good people or two good departments. I bet you've seen this. This is a great department full of really good individuals that do great work. This is a great department full of good individuals. Great. Because of some dynamic, uh, they get at odds and they don't handle that conflict or that disagreement well. I know mm. last time I was on, we talked about kind of modeling as the leader handling being disagreed with uh in a, in a real healthy way that's really good for my my people to see but i i think sometimes it's just that that little seed of division and all of a sudden even really nice people can be at each other's throats at least in my family that's what, the way it goes <laughs> you know that's, that's interesting you say that because uh, one of the common phenomena we see in any organization um whether it's for-profit uh, non-profit government public sector whatever or education um, you see these organizations where they have people that mean well. They they want to support the overall vision of the company. Um, they might believe in the change that they're going through as an organization, whether it's a digital transformation or org restructure, whatever the case may be. Um, but yet, and so you get this mindset, this sort of a false sense of security that this change isn't going to be that difficult. Our, our team's on board and they're 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 willing to go through the hard work to make the change. But then you made the point about your feelings getting hurt along the way. And then you start to realize as a human, um, you're taking away some of my responsibilities or you're changing my job. You're somehow disrupting my world and my feelings are hurt. And now I start to undermine, it starts to undermine my commitments or my excitement about this change initiative we're going through. So even in the best intentioned organizations, if you don't mitigate that, um, that stuff sort of starts to seep to the surface over, over time. And a lot of, I think a lot of executives fail to see that in organizations. 
And if I'm working with that company, I really would try to zero in on what's causing uh, fear and anxiety because mm-hmm. fear and anxiety uh, kind of sends us to the dumber parts of our brain, uh, just like anger does. Right. And of course, if there's change, I'm going to feel some, some trepidation, some anxiety. Um, so doing a good job, and this is one of the things I know you do, uh, organization does a good job uh, up front and proactively of helping mitigate some of that fear and anxiety and letting people know it is going to be changed, but it's also going to be okay. And on the other end of it, uh, things are going to be better. We're going to be better. Um, again, easy, easy to say, but sometimes it's hard to, to, to alleviate those fears for people. So that's what I look for is during a change is, is the fear causing individuals to behave in ways that they, they wouldn't normally and how can we help them with that, with that fear and the unpredictable, mm. uh, the unknown? If people, you know, I always think about people's top fears. Uh, you know, the, the unknown is, is often out there because we don't know what it is. And then another one that comes up a lot is, uh, is, is public speaking. If you think about that and, and doing a lot of public speaking, I enjoy it immensely. And I've thought, why is that such a great fear? And I realized it's, I don't think it's even public speaking. I think it's public embarrassment Mm. that people are really afraid of. And so that's just a scenario that they imagine that would be really embarrassing. I imagine having to sing karaoke and and there's no, you know, there's no alcohol. That's not even karaoke (laughs) at that point. But yeah, if I had to sing in front of a bunch of people, that would be the, the scary scenario for me. So I don't think it's really public. I think it's public embarrassment and the relevance here is in my organization, maybe right now I'm perceived as someone who knows what the heck they're doing, right? I do a good job. I'm perceived as competent. And I, we see this with, uh, with kids in school a lot. I have this sense of how competent I am. I have a self-concept based on am I good at this or am I not? I've been doing this thing and now I feel like I'm pretty good at it. And now you are going to ask me to do this new thing. And a huge fear that we don't always think about is I'm going to look like a fool in front of these people who have historically, I feel like I've earned their respect and they see me as a capable person. So you just asked me to go from doing something I feel good about to something I'm scared to do. And, and in some sense, it's going to be in front of because the results are, you know, they're going to be put out there in front of my peers. Well, that's the very thing that kids, some kids, their worst nightmare is having to go up and solve a, a problem, you know, up on, on the board in front of the class. Sometimes as an organization, that's kind of what we're doing. And in many cases, we're doing it to our best people. Oh, yeah. you're the really capable person. We'll give you this new task. You'll be great at it. And we don't think enough about how scary that might be for that person. So, yeah, I think the short answer of what to look for when people are maybe not behaving uh, the way we hoped during a change is what's what's scaring them what's what's hurting them or what's scaring them or what in the past has hurt or scared them that this is reminiscent of because again as human beings our uh, our body keeps this score of past hurts and uh it's why maybe you and i might have a team that we love and they get a lead and we go oh no <laughs> they're gonna right. what's gonna happen? i've seen this before uh, it's, seriously, if, if it's reminiscent of something that, that I went through before, and that's another thing we're up against. Some people have been in an organization that wasn't super healthy before, mm. and they're going, oh, no, here we go again. I've seen this yeah. before. 
we're going to turn on each other and, you know, some of that stuff. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, we're here playing a clip of a conversation between Jed Hayford and myself talking about emotional intelligence and how it relates to digital and business transformations. We have a lot more to get to, but first we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting, and we recently hosted our Digital Stratosphere 2022 virtual event. It's three days of packed content related to digital transformation best practices, about 16 or 18 different workshops and different speakers that are presenting on different topics, everything you need to know about transformation. The, the bad news is you, if you miss that event, the event's over. The, the live event already happened. But the good news, if you've missed it, or even if you did attend it and you want to see replays or you want to catch the sessions you missed, you can do that now by going to stratosphere2022.com. Go to stratosphere2022.com, register. All you have to do is put in your, your name and email address, uh, just a few fields. You get immediate access to all the recordings. And the recordings cover everything from digital strategy, um, software selection, organizational change, process improvement, architecture, data migration, cloud, trends in the industry, um, how to avoid failure, some of the legal aspects to think about, contractual aspects to think about as it relates to your transformation. All that is stuff that you'll get by registering for Stratosphere 2022 replay. And again, go to stratosphere2022.com and you can listen to all the replays of all the workshops that you might have missed at the event. So hope you check it out and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 86. You can find new episodes of the show every Wednesday on YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, as well as all the audio podcast platforms. Thanks for listening here today. We're here in the midst of a conversation playing you a clip with Jed Hafer, who's an emotional intelligence expert. And we're talking about how emotional intelligence relates to and can enable better digital transformations. So let's cut back to the clip. Now, what about speaking of turning on each other? Here's a here's a question from uh, someone over on Twitch. So I'm glad to see that we have uh, people watching on the Twitch uh, stream. Some people my age don't even know what that is. Twitch. I don't know what it is. I've never I never used it. But, uh, <laughs> I do have an account on there. That I have I have kids, so I know what it is. <laughs> yeah, I, I vaguely I, I suppose I know what it is, but I don't use it very often. But uh, question here is a is a great one, which sort of alludes or maybe builds on or takes a different direction from what you were just saying, Jed which is if every organization is just made out of people who care about the mission, where should society have people who are universally, universally malicious and negative? So, or maybe I'll just maybe simplify that a little bit more. What do you do as an organization if you, you just steer clear of malicious and negative people? Are people really negative and malicious? Are they negative and malicious in certain environments? Or what do you, what do you have to say to that? Yeah, this gets into kind of a big uh, philosophical question. Uh, let me start at the at the small level, at the micro level. My organization, I've had to do cost benefit analysis before, and once in a while, <laughs> I've always said up front, give me the good person, give me the nice person, give me the person who wants to learn, and I'll, I'll take that person over the super skilled person, you know, within reason, because I can probably train this person, especially if they have the the right attitude. And at some point they'll, they'll catch up and be more valuable than the super skilled person. I've also been in organizations where a person had a really specific and valuable skill and it was a chicken or the egg. Like, did they become this way because they're, they're somewhat irreplaceable 
And so they got this attitude or are they that way? And then they just happen to have this, the skill. And now it, you know, it, it, again, one sort of feeds the other always as a leader, you're, you're going to do some cost benefit analysis, but the organization I was in for the longest, we started out kind of erring on the side of, Oh, that person's too valuable. We basically have to let them get away with being stinky mm-hmm. to everybody else. And we basically have to let them get away with, with ignoring rules that everyone else is expected to follow. Um, not, this was not personally my decision, but the, the administrative team. And at one point we had a huge turnover at the administrative team and the new leader came in and said, no, we're not doing that. I'll find somebody there's, you know, so the world is a big place. There's a lot of people. And there was much more of a propensity to, to jettison the toxic person. And it was remarkable. Well, one of the, one of the most telling examples I can think of is we almost immediately replaced that irreplaceable negative person with somebody who became so valuable because they were exact opposite end of the spectrum, super uh, kind and loving and really uh, generous heart and just good person toward the rest of the organization. And then we were looking back going, I can't believe we put up with that negative person for years. years. So on the micro level, I I would say as an organization, again, within reason, probably better to err on the side of saying, this is just not a good fit for that person. If they're really, um, I mean, I want to have some compassion and say, maybe are they going through something? Um, Experienced this recently, person that I perceived as, well, this person's just super negative, found out what they were going through and and changed a lot of my attitude of, uh, wow, you know, if I was going through that, I don't know that I'd be behaving even as as well as they are. Um, At the the same time, yeah, I think think sometimes as leaders, we have to go, this person is too destructive to our culture. Um, too toxic to their fellow employees and they just have to go Uh, on the the broader level of society you know i've been working with kids for a really long time and i'm definitely a hopeful person that people can change there's good brain research on this now about uh, neuroplasticity Uh, a guy named dr daniel amen i'm a big fan of his stuff has has come out with all these brain scans and said you know we used to say oh you know you got brain damage there's nothing we can do or the brain can't change you know, he came along and said, I've seen more brain scans than any person in human history. And yeah, there is there is a such thing as neuroplasticity. The brain can change. People can change. So, yeah, I believe in, in hope and I believe in people changing. That doesn't mean I'm going to hold on to a person who's who's dragging my organization uh, down and down and down. Um, we could get into a whole other discussion about about prisons. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> to me, I don't think anybody gets better in prison, but the nice thing about it is they're not hurting anybody else while they're there. And so if, if I start thinking about, oh, is this making that person better? The answer is often nope. But same thing as if we suspend a kid from a, a school. Um, well, that kid didn't learn anything while he was suspended from school. Yeah, but he also didn't hurt any of the other students here at, at the school while he was gone. Uh, so that's the uh, that's the, the calculus that we're doing, right? Is it doing more harm for everyone else. And if so, I'd, I'd rather my compassion has to extend to the rest of my people too. And if this person's really, really harmful to the rest of the people, I got to think about them too. Right. 
Now, what about here's here's an interesting question. It's it's actually a, a, a different spin on a question that I was going to ask you, but I, I like the spin better. Although I am going to uh, shorten it, they truncate the the question here a bit. Um, but I'll maybe I'll try to paraphrase it a bit because um, it, it actually won't show the whole question here because it is a bit longer. But general question is, um, you know, to go through a cultural shift. Let's just say I'm part of an organization where there are some cultural warts or things I want to improve or fix or change over time. Um, but I've got some short-term profit goals and incentives I need to hit, and that that's going to take a certain amount of my time, and that might be my short-term priority. How do I balance those shorter-term, short-sighted profit motive-driven things versus something that is a longer-term potential advantage on the cultural side? How do I? How do you find that balance, or how do you how do you encourage or, or um, convince people that they need to go through that change? You have been in that exact situation where uh, as like a middle management, I'm saying to the bosses who control and then look closely at the money side, trust me, please let me hire this good person. Please let me create this position that we need. Please let me incentivize this really good person to stay. I promise you it'll pay off in the long run. <laughs> I've been that guy. And I would say most, most, most of the time I was right. I was able to, in the long run, say, see, I told you, thank you for trusting me. Uh, I mean, obviously, I don't want to see a company go out of business because on the front end, the cost of doing this stuff is, is just too much. But I really do believe if we think longer term and we think bigger picture, which is happening less and less in our world. Um, you know, you see stats on, on how quickly people will leave a job um, versus, you know, our, our parents' generation, they'd stay in the same organization for 40 years or whatever. And now it's more like 40 minutes sometimes right. um, be, because a lot more people are doing things uh, digitally and remotely. It's just the, the, the loyalty of that, that part of the culture, that loyalty, we're all in this together is lessened. But at the same time, as a leader, I've, I've almost never regretted the front end investment. And I would say, and I was, I was, I was reading the question. It's kind of small letters, but I was reading it as, as you were reading that investment is usually about the time and the energy and the prioritization that the leader is doing than it is necessarily, um, the, this huge financial commitment. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know how much money the average organization that that you work with is spending on culture you know if it's like the the uh donut <laughs> the donut fund and the once a year retreat or i don't i don't know what people are are doing i i know that to me the biggest investment comes from that leader going around and making contact with people and checking in and intentionally modeling some of these things that we've talked about doesn't really cost anything. Yeah, it costs your time, but you're gonna you're gonna spend that time doing something. Uh, so especially if it's not a hard investment, I think yeah. it's super easy to justify. Yeah, if all of a sudden I'm going into the red doing some of this stuff, you know, certainly I got I got to look at that. But as the person who's been in the really tough position of the middle, kind of pulling from both sides of it, I have uh, I have mostly had really good long term results. Uh, I remember a couple people in particular, we just had to come up with more to keep them because they were so good. 
And my boss later was like, wow, that was, that was a really, really good decision because I see how incredibly valuable they are. And there's, you know, there's a small number of people in the world who were, who, who would be that valuable in that role. Right. Well, it almost, um, it brings me back to the, the first analogy or one of the first analogies you brought up here today, which is setting the, creating the weather. It's like, if you're, if your journey is to go towards success, profitability, whatever your short-term goal might be, you've got the short-term short-sighted goal. Do you want to do it in a blizzard and a snowstorm with ice and dangerous conditions, or would you rather do it on a beach where it's sunny yeah. and warm and not, not too hot? And so it's sort of like you're setting the backdrop for what your journey towards those short-term goals are going to be. And so it seems and like if that's you've got those people who are just sunshine. You gotta, you gotta take good care of them. And, and then you, you should also be one of those people. If, if you're the person who's charged with keeping the culture positive, that means I sometimes have to remember, I like people, but sometimes I have to remind my face that I like people. <laughs> right. I need to be that person who's going around and being and being sunshine. Yeah. So if I have an organization that's not sunshine, but I want it to be, or I want it to be better in whatever, whatever that, whatever those aspirations might be, why is it so hard to change culture? Why don't more organizations do it? Why aren't more organizations successful at it? Why is it so hard? I think sometimes you need an outside perspective at the, at the, at the risk of sounding uh, self-serving and, and, uh, and third stage serving. Uh, <laughs> it's okay. In the old in the olden days when they were on ships, they needed to have, you know, some fixed point that they could. You can't tell where you're going unless it's by comparison with something else. And I think sometimes that's what the outside perspective gives you is you it's hard to tell accurately your culture or where you're drifting without some either way to measure it or way to view it. That's just beyond yourself. Um, again, as human beings, we all have our known self, right? our, our own uh, self-awareness of, of who we are and what we, what we think we look like, what we think we sound like. An outside perspective, I mean, this is why coaches think even Michael Jordan had a coach and he didn't just have, he didn't have a coach for the team, but he also had a personal coach working with him. I just watched a little documentary about uh, Dirk Nowitzki, who was a phenomenal basketball player. His entire career had someone working intensely with him one-on-one -on -one, and he could have just said, Hey, I'm one of the best in the world. I'm going to do my right. thing. So having that other perspective, that outside uh, view of how we're doing, I think is super important. That's, that's one of the easy things I'd recommend is get some perspective that's outside of your organization because you're you're never doing you're never quite accurate with how we're doing right if you don't have something outside of your ship that you can that you can use to, to measure that a little bit um and then i'll, I'll go back to in, intentionality wins the day and intentionality pulls us to greatness so if it's my company and i just set this goal we are going to be this way and I'm going to bring in and draw in people who also uh, see that as an important goal. The nice thing about mirror neurons is the good stuff is contagious too. Mm -hmm. Those things that we do intentionally, uh, it's, it's pretty neat to see. And I get to see this in schools a lot. Uh, this teacher has established this procedure or this habit and all the kids are doing it. Pretty soon you look down the hall and the other, other groups of kids are doing it too. 
and uh, that good stuff being contagious is, is really fun to watch and it, and it helps you get momentum and then you can look back and say look where we were you know look how look how many great improvements we've made right right well this is good so so maybe just as a sort of a capstone question to tie this all together um i think i think you've done a really good job of explaining what culture is and what it means how to change it how to be deliberate about it the intentionality behind it all that stuff but what if i'm a so i I get the general concepts but now i kind of step back and look at my own organization and I'm thinking about culture and I don't really know where to start. You know, is it a good, I don't even know if maybe I don't have a good understanding. Is it a goal, uh, an effective culture, ineffective culture? Do I need to change it? How do I change it? I don't even know what, I, I don't know where to start. So what, what do you recommend to a team or to an organization that might just be just now starting to think about culture for the first time? A super easy thing that you can do. And, you know, some, some organizations will have an HR department that has tools for this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you don't, there are ways to send out anonymous uh, surveys or requests for feedback. And I like, I like an initial round. I mean, both, both all, all information can be valuable information. Someone tells you, you know, your feet stink. You're like, okay, that's valuable information. I can do something with that. Uh, so the first round is an anonymous round in a sense of we put out a way for people to give us this feedback we're soliciting it. It's safe. Um, they, they feel safe in being really honest. Um, there will come around where we want the more specific and we want to know the source and, and dig into it a little bit more. But I mean, the, the easiest thing in the world to be, you know, set up, uh, and you probably have uh, 10 different tools that you might recommend, but you know, some I'm, I'm picturing some kind of a, of a survey that people fill out and, and we assure them and it, it's because it's true. Uh, we're just going to get the overall feedback. Uh, and, and, and it's, it's, it's safe for you to be truthful. Right. Um, that's, a, that's an easy, easy thing to do. Um, doesn't, and, and I'd keep it short and, but to the important information that you're trying to solicit. Um, just that step alone, some organizations are surprised in, in either direction. They're surprised how happy and, uh, and feel, uh, feeling good about the organization people are or, or the other way. And if they knew whose answers were, were whose, they'd probably be even more surprised. Uh, but then, then that, that next level of evaluation of our organization, again, something I know that you help. Uh, companies do and to me that is fun stuff um it's not as easy and sometimes it can be unpleasant but just like our own you know in our own lives we become more self-aware we're probably going to have better luck making the changes that we need to make if i uh if i just never look in the mirror (laughs) or i never do anything to to check on how i'm doing I probably am going to lose sight of some things. Uh, it doesn't mean I need to be obsessed. And organizations can do this too. They can go too far the other way and just get absolutely obsessed with feedback. And they're always looking in the mirror so much that they, they don't do other things uh, as much as they should. But that's a, that, a good first step is, is an honest. Uh, and, and the reason I say start with the anonymous is it gives people, it kind of opens the the, the door to there's only one reason in the world I would, I would ask that question and let you answer it anonymously. I really do want the answer. 
right right so it's a, it's a sincere move on the part of the the organization yeah yeah, absolutely. And I think that you're right that, that assessing and having that objective view of your culture, the strengths of the weaknesses, and then stepping back and looking at, is that what we intended? Is that what we want? Is that what's best for us to achieve whatever our longer term goals are? And then figuring out almost like the dials, you know, on a, on a control board, you know, you're, you're sort of tweaking the, the culture the way you want it in certain dimensions, whether it's uh, a lot of the things you mentioned, the curiosity, level of curiosity or the level of expectations, accountability, um, whatever it is. I mean, every culture has their own way of defining it, but you, you sort of have to define what you are today, what you want to be, and then ultimately how you're going to how to transition that culture over time. And just understand that you'll never get those dials quite perfect. You'll yeah. always be adjusting them. Uh, that frustrates some people, uh, but that's, that's the uh, journey of life. We, we, we never really uh, quite arrive. That's, that's how I am with my sound system at home. I can never get it exactly how i want or the song changes and then i have to i have to change it again because it doesn't sound quite right to me so uh, it's way a good way but to you can at. get it pretty darn good you can and i'm thinking about it i guess that's the key is you're all, if you're thinking about it you're focused on it you're you're consciously aware i think that intentionality that you talked about early on is super important because it's it's deliberate i mean you, you are intentionally doing certain things to drive a certain type of culture or you're not in which case the gravity that we talked about will, will sort of suck it down to the worst possible place so it's a and then the neatest thing will happen is a new person comes into your organization and they go, wow, what what a great place this is. Just the feel here is so great. Or someone comes into Eric's, I go into Eric's house and I say, wow, this sounds great. Mine sounds like a tin can. Uh, you've really, really worked on this and this is super impressive. It, it's nice because once in a while you do, you get somebody and it doesn't even mean that their organization was horrible or toxic. But when someone comes in and says, wow, we just didn't have this. And I so appreciate it. What a, what a great feeling. And then now you've got a new person who's a fan and is already in that place of appreciation and excitement and uh, your culture just probably got better. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a wonderful thing to see that that improvement uh, begets more improvement. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Thank you, Jed. Good conversation. Thanks for being on the show and hope you enjoyed that clip. We're going to unpack some of the concepts that Jed brought up here in just a moment, but first we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 86. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham. And uh, Kyler, we just played the clip of Jed Hafer talking about emotional intelligence. A uh, great clip that 
first appeared on the show several episodes ago. I don't even remember when it was. I think it was late last year, maybe early this year. Um, several months ago, we thought it was so good that we'd play it for you again. But what were some of your thoughts and takeaways now that time has passed and you've, you've heard the clip again? Yeah, well, I think uh, attaching it to your your conversation with Wendy too, and just around the education behind how do you set people up to be successful in the workforce. So Jed, as, as we mentioned, is a specialist in education specifically when it comes to emotional intelligence. And so I think that fits with a, a really interesting kind of talk track that Wendy had within your conversation of we aren't educating people right, you know, in the in the fact of creating the opportunity in her mind to understand how to actually be strategic and collaborative, but then also creating that awareness around your own emotional intelligence as a leader, because you can't create change or create impact if you don't know your own data around emotional intelligence. So I almost wish that that was, you know, a required class in at least higher education, even earlier than that, right, is understanding what what does that mean for you as a leader or you in the workforce so that you can better set yourself up for success. Yeah, I, I agree. And it, it hearing it now again and talking about this topic again in the context of our earlier guest in this episode with Wendy um, talking about uh, business architecture, uh, it makes, you know, we, when Wendy and I were talking at one point in the conversation, we talked about how a lot of times people uh, assume that people want the change and are, are ready for change. And actually, as I'm saying this, maybe it was you and I talking about it. It, it was uh, a while back in this episode, so I don't remember which one. It was either you or Wendy we were talking about this, where um, we, you know, you have these these topics or the, these points where you, um, and I'm totally losing my train of thought now that I, I was trying so hard to remember who, who was it that, that said I think it. it was, uh, I think it was us talking about um, that, that automation versus autonomous systems and understanding yeah. your employees, right? And that takes emotional yeah. intelligence, I think what you're saying, um, to do so. Thank you for bailing me out because I totally lost where I was my going job. With that. My job. <laughs> job. But, but I, oh, where I was going to say, and, you, and this ties back to something else you said, which you were talking about earlier about organizational readiness assessments. And a lot of times when we do those assessments, you made the point of how executives are shocked by what they see and hear. And a lot of times it's because they they don't pick up on the cues that what they're seeing on the surface is not reality. So in other words, like, for example, in other words, a lot of times organizations will say, well, are people ready for change? But they all complain about the system and the processes and that sort of thing. And back to your point about autonomous systems, People may be saying that and they may believe that, but then when you start to dig in and start to define and reveal that their jobs are materially going to change and you're going to take work away from them and totally disrupt their lives, now people start to resist change. And executives are always surprised by that. They say, no, 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 no. They, they totally get it. They, they're fully on board. And we hear it all the time. And then you do these organizational assessments and you really dig deep into the organization and you get to the you kind of below the surface of the iceberg. So to me, that's part of emotional intelligence too, is being realistic and really understanding that what people are telling you and what you're seeing on the surface isn't necessarily reality. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's the point of those data-driven, um, you know, organizational change management and human behavior 
deliverables. So a lot of times that can be seen as more of a soft science, but it's truly not. That data is what's going to uncover the opportunity and utilizing your emotional intelligence to really dig into that because it has to have a quantitative and qualitative approach. It can't just be one or the other or it's not going to be successful. Um, Eric and I were recently talking to uh, some college students that were interested in the digital transformation space. And one of them asked us, you know, how do you, how do you have those difficult conversations? And I wish someone would have told me decades before that if you're a, a very sensitive person, it's difficult and it's never going to be easy to have difficult conversations when it comes to either colleagues or employee management or those types of things. It's never going to be easy. That's why it's important to have that awareness about your own self so that you can be successful not only in having those conversations but coming to uh, a collaborative outcome. And that's going to come easier than others, um, but you have to know that about yourself and your organization and your leadership specifically style if you're going to be successful in a very high stress, high anxiety project like a digital transformation. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And and again, just being realistic and understanding and proactively anticipating that that's the case. I think that's that's to me an important part of emotional intelligence as well. Absolutely. So highly recommend, um, you know, doing those emotional intelligence surveys, uh, those types of things. You can find a, a lot out about yourself or simply reading a book about what does that mean um, so that that way, you know, you can help empower your organization to have that organizational agility. But until you know where you're at, your current state and level of emotional intelligence as an organization, it's very difficult to have that that culture of transformation. Yep. Yep. Couldn't agree more. And that's a good, good place to leave it. And, uh, you know, I'm glad, glad we revisited that topic because it's one that we can't seem to emphasize enough. And a lot of organizations just aren't good at recognizing that skill set and that need uh, on the people side. So, well, good. Well, thank you for another uh, great episode, Kyler. And thank you to the audience for listening here today. Um, again, you can find new episodes of Transformation Ground Control every Wednesday on all the audio podcast platforms and uh, LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter as well. So be sure to check it out wherever you prefer to listen or watch. Um, hope you all have a great week and we'll look forward to seeing you next time on Transformation Ground Control. Have a great day. Mm -hmm.